It's Tuesday morning, July 6th. want to welcome you to this edition of Real Talk. That is Ayla Brooke and the Sound Men, their album Desolation Sounds on Fallen Tree Records. If you've been digging Ayla Brooke, by the way, ever since November 23rd, our very first show, uh, you may be interested to know that they are starting to flirt with the idea I don't know if I'm blowing anything here. I don't think I can. I'll speak in huge generalities. They're they're starting to flirt with the idea of 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 maybe putting some new music together, mm. of maybe of maybe touring this record that they never got to tour when mm. this pandemic sort of stood in the way of about a million things. Ayla Brook and the Salmon, you can find them online. Give them a follow on social media. What a bunch of beauties. This episode of Real Talk is presented by the team at Bitcoin Well. 2021 is a big year for Bitcoin Well. They're getting set to take over a big new space, a big new corporate headquarters. Of course, they're, they're proudly headquartered out of Edmonton, Alberta, just like us, but also just like us. They make inroads, inroads across the country. They've got Bitcoin ATMs across the country. If you're going, wait a second. A friend of mine was telling me about Bitcoin, like some sort of like a savings account. Now you're saying there's an ATM. Am I using it for spending? Hang on. I don't even get it. Well, this is when you're going to want to check out Bitcoin. Well, online, great advice, great direction from the team that's been in the crypto game for way before. I mean, from way before, way before it was cool, way before people were talking about it. These are the OGs of crypto. You'll find them under the sponsors tab at ryanjesperson.com. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. So depending on when you catch this show, if it's, you know, Tuesday afternoon or, or, or Wednesday, or if it's September when you hear this show, this will not be breaking news, but of note this morning, uh, on the advice of the Prime Minister, the Queen has approved... Mary Simon as Canada's 30th governor general. That announcement made uh, just about a half hour ago before we're coming to you live, of course, 1030 Eastern, 830 Mountain on Tuesday morning. The prime minister making the announcement 10 o'clock Eastern uh, Tuesday morning. Who is Mary Simon? Uh, Mary Simon uh, is an, an Inuk leader, a former Canadian diplomat, a current fellow with the Arctic Institute of North America uh, early in her career. This is going to trigger some people. I just know it. I know it's going to trigger some people that, that that early in her career, she was a producer and a host for CBC North. I know that some people's heads are going to explode there. Uh, Mary Simon entered public service as secretary of the board for the Northern Quebec Inuit Association. She's done uh, a ton of work as Canada's first ambassador for circumpolar affairs, was the lead negotiator for the creation of the Arctic Council. She served as ambassador to Denmark, and she's... Uh, done a lot of work uh, when it comes to um, the Nunavut Implementation Commission, uh, the Indigenous Permanent Participants of the Arctic Council, and many other uh, involvements over the years. She was a joint wow. member of the committee on, on NAFTA. Uh, she was a chancellor of Trent University. Um, she, I mean, I'm just reading her bio here. Uh, a whole bunch of stuff. An officer of the Order of Canada has been for about 15 years. Yeesh. Recipient of the National Aboriginal Achievement Award. How about this? This is the one I might wear if I was if I was a person like this. I mean, if Mary Simon, she 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 was awarded a gold medal from the Royal Canadian Geographical Society. 
that feels like the metal you'd if you go to like a uh, you know a read-in week or something you go to elementary school to read to the kids mm. i would show up wearing probably the gold medal from the royal canadian geographical society that might be the one uh, right up until becoming governor general yeah that just then it just gets bumped down just <laughs> to the next just the next tier so she's got five <laughs> Honorary Doctorate of Law degrees, McGill. I mean, how's this representation? Uh, McGill, Queens, Trent, University of Guelph, and the University of Alberta. She was an advisor to the European Space Agency when it comes to Arctic monitoring. This is making me feel really like an underachiever at this point. Yeah. Because it's all about me, apparently. I don't, I don't know why I was going <laughs> to... Oh, See, this is the, the worst thing we can do this morning, the three of us, is stack our achievements up against the woman that's just been named Governor General. So what did you do, Ryan? So what, what have you done? <laughs> well, I mean, I, you know, we welcomed a, uh, about five, you know, five years and 11 months ago, welcomed an infant into our home and we've managed to keep him alive. That's what we need the I applause. That, I think that that is, you know, I'd like to stand up and take a bow for that. We've where's the gold medal for that one? Where's the gold medal for parenting? Thank you. Thank Sam. you very much. Our live studio audience this morning is a little bit. We've asked you all to keep it down, but uh, <laughs> nah, we don't blame you. So so there you have it. So Canada's 30th governor general has been named uh, the Montreal Canadians win last night, which which means that. I mean, some conspiracy theorists were coming out yesterday on the show. We suggested that some people believe, uh, including Tampa's mayor, believe that that perhaps the team should have thrown game four, lose game four intentionally. Of course, this is not how real life works. This is not how pro sports works. Anybody in pro sports will be rolling their eyes at this so hard they get a migraine headache. Well, when you look at what happened, it was an overtime. Yeah. And the goal, the guy like shot it, it bounced off. He bounced off the the back boards yeah. and then Josh Anderson. Yeah, and what then a, what a goal. I'm like I'm like the guy. You know, the, <laughs> the guy. guy. The guy. The guy did this, then the other guy did that, and the next thing we know, they're playing again bada tomorrow bada night. Boom, yeah. Which just goes to show, had you taken my advice, which was not real, had you taken my advice yesterday to take a thousand dollars and bet it on the Habs winning the cup, down three games to none, you would be closer now to achieving your goal of paying off your house early. Uh, but don't really actually do that. That's a terrible bet. That's a terrible bet that you've already put should, the bet in, haven't that you? Nobody should make. <laughs> I, I ran into a guy yesterday who claims he claims that when the Montreal Canadiens made the playoffs, when they clinched their playoff berth, because keep in mind, the Habs weren't supposed to be like nobody thought the Habs were going to be brutal this year, but they were they were not a Stanley Cup favorite. Mm. Uh, I mean, yeah, Carey Price and Shea Weber and people go, oh, Corey Perry's got some staying power and they got these good young kids, right? And, and maybe they could do some damage. Buddy of mine claims his pal put 5,000 bucks on the Habs to make it to the cup final, not to win. He Whoa. claims and he and, and he claims it was a pretty purse. Now, I haven't checked the odds. I haven't fact checked the assertion, but the rumor was this fella took home six figures. Oh, boy. But also keep in mind, that's a $5,000 bet. Like if you lose, I mean, if you lose so it's a 20 times return, at least. Yeah. But if but if the uh, but if the see, this is why we have to have an engineer in studio, because quick <laughs> math, like I don't want to be the one making those quick math decisions. <laughs> but if the Habs had not made it to the Stanley Cup final, you would look at that guy and say, what kind of a dummy bets like that? 
What kind of a dummy bets like that? So there you go. Congratulations to everybody that bet on the Habs to get to this point. We'll see what happens. I think Tampa wins in game five, but I, I don't want to be a pessimist. I mean, who knows? Maybe we can get more hockey. Maybe the Habs can make it 3-2, and then it's a whole new series. Yeah. At some point, we'll, con- we'll convert Sarah Hoyles to become a hockey fan. Hey, I, y- you'll note that I watched it last night because yes. I knew that I needed to be up on it. Oh. Yeah. Your commitment to this show knows no bounds. Well, also, like, being from Edmonton, which is like, you know, Oiler City, you yeah. can't... I'm oil not- country, we call it. Oil country. <laughs> Oiler City. <laughs> Jeez. Oh my goodness. Jeez. You are not in charge of the hashtags. <laughs> Actually, you were keeping an eye on it. I, I so this morning we, we we've got a we've got a reputable guest from the University of Iowa, a law professor standing by in the bullpen right now. I'm not going to leave him sitting for too long. But let me just say I feel like you have set a bear trap for me this morning. We have a quick chat every morning and we say so what are the talkers? What are we going to talk about? Like what what's what's the kind of stuff that we want to make sure, you know, the the provincial government um, you know, the, the, the government that ideologically believes that it should stay out of business has now bought into half of the Sturgeon refinery, which is like the biggest boondoggle. Yeah. It's the biggest disaster in in potentially Alberta's energy history, which is saying a lot. Um, this one probably falls. Who, who wants to play the blame game? Nobody. But Premier Ed Stelmack, this is probably part of his legacy that maybe mm. maybe he might even take back. I, sh- I sure don't speak for him. I sure have a lot of respect for for former Premier Stelmack on a, on a personal level, but but it's been an absolute debacle. Now Alberta owns about half of that. We said, should we put that on our talker list? No, <laughs> not interested. Don't feel Nuh-uh. like talking about that today. New Governor General, obviously, Habs win, obviously. And I say to Hoyles, okay, what's the third? We'd like to have three talking points. What's the third? <laughs> and you tell me that you're you're keeping an eye on a trending hashtag, and I'm going. Uh, this doesn't feel like a smart one for me. <laughs> To step into, what what is the hashtag, right? Yeah, you want me to say it. Yeah, what is you it? You want me to say it so Sam can turn it into a gif. Yeah, yeah. The hashtag "women are delusional" <laughs> is trending today, and I've been scrolling back, and I know you have too, trying to find like how did this get started? Where's the it, start of this? Thing? It's trending, like it is trending, uh, like internationally right now. So yeah. what happened? I can't seem to track down the the root of it, but the great thing is is you know, when someone says or tweets women are delusional with a hashtag, of yeah. course, you go and click on that thing. Yeah. And so then everyone's doing responses. And so what's actually happening is people are doing, you know, witty, cheeky right. rebuttals. Right. And so that's that's what's so then it's pushing it further and further and up. It, it's up. trending. It, it's it's the uh, what's the self. It's a self-fulfilling. It's not a self-fulfilling prophecy. That's a misuse <laughs> of it. But uh, but you know what I'm saying? Women it's are a, delusional. W- yeah. It became a parody of itself. It became a instantly. parody. Yeah. 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 Okay, good. I'm, I feel like we got out of that one relatively unscathed. We can talk about a but little bit. But if you'd like lo- to tweet us the reasons why you believe women are delusional, <laughs> oh, go ahead and then I'll, and we'll turn it into a saying. Is that what we'll do? That we'll because they call oil country oil city. city. We, you know how it is here. Hey, hockey fans. Everybody here in Oiler City know what I'm talking about? <laughs> Crickets. Crickets. So, you know, we keep an eye on the hashtag. We, we will be getting into whether or not you believe that churches should be taxed. Uh, and and we, we broadened it to say houses of worship because one of our debaters yesterday and a skilled one at that. Right. Immediately in the, in the I thought it was it was a great conversation. One guy really showed up to play. The other was like there for sure and did a pretty good job. But like one, you know, you know what I'm if you watch it, you know, what I'm talking about. 
he came in and he was basically because you know what this is about. It's about the Catholic Church. That's what the national conversation is about. Maybe global, except for he also was like. And let's remember that Catholics and Muslims and Jews. And I was like, ah, here he goes. Here yeah. he goes, which is a smart debating tactic. Very smart. Well, broaden it, right? Broaden we the conversation, were... which is great. Right. Yeah. But it was it was an effective initial strategy in in the casual debate that we hosted. So when we posted, I was after respectful. The show, what's that? I would say respectful. Like, I appreciated that. The, I mean, sometimes there was some jabs by saying, I appreciate the doodle, doodle, like yeah. your perspective. Did you see the two of them? You see afterwards, our, going afterwards on Twitter talking about they're making plans to go for, for beers, beers and they're going to have lunch. And I was like, don't let the rumor get out. That real talk is actually bringing together people of different perspectives for civilized conversation, right? Don't don't let the world that find out happen. about this podcast because <laughs> people aren't going to know what to do. The world's going to shift on its axis if people find out what's happening here on real talk. We're going to talk about I mean, this is a fascinating story coming up in just a second. Vehicular intimidation with Professor Greg Schill out of the University of Iowa. But I wanted to remind you before, and we will be getting into the results of whether or not you believe uh, churches should be taxed, houses of worship should be taxed. Uh, long story short, about 4,000 of you voted in our poll, and it's an absolute landslide blowout. 90% say yes. The number held true the entire day. But we'll get into some of your comments later. We'll keep an eye on the hashtag RealTalkRJ, which you know is powered by the team at Park Power. I'm always telling you to go to parkpower.ca because you have a chance to sign up, bring your business over there, internet, electricity, and natural gas. And with the promo code 2021-REALTALK, they'll give you 70 bucks off your first bill. But I never, I never I'm not really dove, doven, divin, doven, dove. I've never really dived. Dived? It's probably dived. But I, I feel like it should dove. be dove. Like, what did you, if you're in scuba, what did you do yesterday? We dove. Okay. Okay. But it feels weird to say I've never dove into the, dived in? I've never really taken you into the website (laughs) at parkpower.ca and shown you why they're the greatest utilities provider that ever existed. It's true because it says it right on their website. They're perfect in every way. There are no possible downsides whatsoever. And then the small print is pretty fun and cheeky. But if you look at this, honestly, they do business so differently. These are the pros and cons of bringing your business to them. Isn't that great? Like one of the pros, buy utilities from a small business that supports the local economy. Con, you never, you no longer get to buy utilities from big corporations. Check it out at parkpower.ca. We also wanted to remind you this morning that, so the team at Athabasca University, we've been telling you about this power ed initiative for a while this is super cool because we're starting to hear from real talkers that have signed up for the micro courses and then taken them they've they've graduated they completed them and they're getting in touch with us and saying it was so great one of them embracing allyship and inclusion you remember through the month of june you had that promotional code you get a, a bit of a deal on it well they've got a whole bunch of different things including digital wellness ai machine learning skill sets that the modern worker needs for the modern workforce and you can find more about it. You can sign up, complete it on-demand learning from Athabasca University at PowerEd. Find them online at powered.ca. Well, you've seen these horrific stories in the news. Uh, Sam, why don't we just call up some of the headlines that we've seen? I mean, you, you know, you, you see examples of, of people intimidated, in some cases injured or even killed. Uh, horrific circumstances where people acting out behind the wheel of 
vehicles, whether it's a, a terrorist mandate, whether it's a, a moment of blind fury, whatever it is, police and members of the public have been trying to sort through tragedies in places like Minnesota, obviously Charlottesville. And who will ever forget, of course, that horrific incident in London, Ontario, where a family was targeted in a premeditated, cold-blooded killing. Greg Schill is a law professor at the University of Iowa, an expert on transportation law and policy, and the author of a recent piece in The Atlantic, How Vehicular Intimidation Became the Norm. Professor, welcome to Real Talk, and thanks for making time for us today. Thanks, Ryan. It's a pleasure to be with you. When we talk about vehicular intimidation, I mean, you've gotten to a point where you could describe yourself certainly as a specialist here in understanding it's the history of it, the motivation behind it. Uh, Was it items in the news like the ones we just mentioned that initially put this on your radar? Um, Unfortunately, these are just the latest iteration. So this is something that I've been studying actually for some years, long since before um, some of the assaults that you're mentioning from uh, 2020, and I think some from 2019, even Charlottesville back in 2017. Um, we have a basic problem in, in the U.S., and I gather the situation is not all that different in Canada, um, where um, when people uh, strike other people with their cars, that's presumed to be an accident. And sometimes it is an accident in just the everyday meaning of the word, right? And uh, an oopsie, a mistake, whatever. We've all had fender benders. Um, it's certainly something we all fear when we get behind the wheel. Um, but it's not always an accident. And, um, you know, the lawmakers and policymakers 100 years ago were confronting this problem. You have these heavy machines piloted by ordinary people on the public right of way for the very first time in human history, right? They weigh thousands of pounds. They go very fast. How are you going to handle the inevitable um, crashes? And so we just looked at this problem and we just said, you know what? We are just going to put this all in the category of accident, require people to have insurance and hope for, and we'll prosecute the most egregious cases like Charlottesville, but we will, um, you know, just kind of uh, not look deeper into it. And so that's, we've had a, this is the end of a century of this kind of policy, unfortunately. Has the, has the way that, that people use their vehicles, I mean, has, it, has it changed over the years? I mean, you talk about the history of, of automobiles. I guess we're, we're probably at a point of what, about 100 years now when it, when, it, when it has not been unusual or when it's been somewhat of the norm for people to look out their front window and see at least one vehicle owned by a private citizen. I guess we're in about a century's worth of, of vehicle ownership. Is, what does the history of vehicular intimidation look like? Yeah, um, so uh, that's right. I think they became a mass market product in the U.S. and Canada around that time. So you'd see a lot more of them. And it was also around that time in the, in the 1920s where this um, conflict between so let me just back up for a second. So in the street, right, you just you've, you've got conflicts between people who want to go different directions, right? Just like you would in a shopping mall, right? You want to go directly across to a store and somebody else is walking that way. Like you got to wait. And it's not a big deal um, because you're both moving three miles an hour and no, there's no risk of harm. When you introduce vehicles into that mix, it's a lot more uh, consequential. So these conflicts start getting severe about 100 years ago. And um, elite opinion makers in the U.S., um, wanted to facilitate the introduction of more and more automobiles. And so they actually made it illegal to walk in the street. They created the crime of jaywalking. Um, 
And so that, that reserves streets for cars, except for in certain circumstances, like at an intersection uh, or a crosswalk. Um, and so that did contribute to a lot of uh, what we might call the vehicular intimidation in the sense that you better stay on the sidewalk if you want uh, to save your life. Um, and also, you know that if you walk in the street, you'll be blamed for your own death because you'll be deemed a, a jaywalker. I have. You know what? I want to pull an audible here, Sam. Can, can we tee up that video now, uh, Professor? I wasn't I was actually intending to use this a little bit later in the interview because I wanted to talk to you about, you know, terrorism and things like and, and obviously we can spend time doing that. I'm not sure if you're familiar with who Jim Kenzie is. He's a host for a show uh, called Motoring TV, and it airs on TSN, which is basically the Canadian ESPN. Okay, so there's the context. Um, Brent Totterin, who's a good friend of this show, former chief planner of the city of Vancouver. He, uh, he owns uh, Totterin Urban Works. He, he's, he, he sent this to me privately. He said, you've got to talk about this on the show. This is absolutely preposterous. I want to play this for you because you've just teed it up beautifully. This is Jim Kenzie. Now, the, the irony of his microphone, it just says motoring TV. And as you're listening to him, you'll go, no shit. Because his perspective, his perspective on pedestrians here is wild. Uh, it's about 90 seconds. So, so for our audience, uh, buckle up. Here it is. This from a recent episode of Motoring TV. Safety conversation is increasingly being directed towards pedestrian safety. The city of Toronto has declared but by the middle of next decade, they want to be 100% pedestrian fatality free. That's a snappy little slogan, isn't it? The problem is, as usual, they're putting the emphasis in the wrong place. They're putting the onus on the driver of the car. Sure, it's the car that causes the problem by hitting the pedestrian. But aren't we putting that responsibility on the wrong party? It's the pedestrians who are going to suffer. Shouldn't they be paying more attention? Statistics show that the percentage of pedestrian fatalities who are drunk is about the same as the percentage of drivers who are drunk in fatal crashes. So the pedestrians are drunk too. Or they're walking along, texting on their phones, walking their dog, crossing the street, paying no attention to whatever's going on. Now, car makers are doing what they can by introducing pedestrian detection systems, which can actually spot a two-legged thing walking along. Whether they can spot a person in a black jacket in the middle of the night, I'm not sure, and I sure don't want to be the test case for that. But the fact is, the pedestrians have to be paying more attention. I don't know how you grew up, but when I grew up, my mother was always telling me, look both ways before you cross the street. Walk direction facing traffic, not with traffic. Wear brightly colored clothes. It was good advice then. It's good advice now. I'm Jim Kenzie. Okay, so there's Jim Kenzie from Motoring TV. Um, I, the minute I saw it, I was I was honestly I know that Brent Totter and when he sent it to me, he was pissed off. I was giggling because I'm going, oh, this is going to set some people off. You want to dig into what he was? I mean, it's not exactly vehicular intimidation, but it's in the spirit of what you were talking about, Professor. Yeah, let's talk about where he's right. Um, I think you got to start with the question who bears responsibility for the risk. Right. So say you're in an airport and because you feel like it, you decide to bust through the emergency exits and run out on the runway and you get run over by a plane that's taking off. Right. Everybody's going to blame you. Nobody is going to have sympathy for you. You're an idiot. Of course, it's your fault. Um, the question is whether the public street, especially in a city like Toronto, one of the biggest, most dynamic cities in the world, is more like a street that's a public space or more like a strip of asphalt at an airport. 
And I think the answer to that question is going to dictate all of the rest of the analysis that you do. If you live in the suburbs and you want to get downtown as fast as possible, that's your goal. That's your highest priority. You can see why um, Brent's attitude would be appealing, right? Uh, because it's the kind of thing that, if enacted, would remove the most people from the street and gets you there as quick as possible. But I don't think that's really a supportable or defensible position if you think about it, even for you know 30 seconds. Um, so that's, that's how I would look at that. Um, you know, I, we're two-legged things. And, the, I, you know, I'm arrogant enough to say that the law and policy should revolve around two-legged things, mm. in his words. Yeah. I, yeah. It's it's an interesting point. I knew it would get people talking. Now, I, I do want to refocus our conversation. The reason we asked you to, to join us is is because of your piece in the Atlantic. And when we talk about vehicular intimidation, I mean, one of our audience members, Dwayne, who's watching us live today on YouTube, he, he, he puts the question very succinctly. He goes, OK, so how do you distinguish between vehicular intimidation, as we're calling it, careless driving and road rage? Is it all one and the same? I would imagine you'll you'll make a distinction between careless driving and and vehicular intimidation, but is intimidation and road rage basically the same ball of wax? Um, I would say road rage typically is, it's not a term of art, but it probably is a, an extreme case of vehicular intimidation. Vehicular intimidation could be you're annoyed because you're stuck behind somebody riding their bike, which by law they have the right to do in the street. And so as soon as you can, you pass them going accelerating really fast with just a, you know, a few inches of distance, which is really dangerous. You know, that might be vehicular intimidation. Road rage, at least in the U.S., would usually involve taking out a gun and shooting somebody because they cut you off or something. So they're in the same category, but one is a more pronounced case than the other. Um, how do you distinguish? I think that's the problem. It's inherently a fact-intensive inquiry, which means it's just it's going to be subject to a he said, she said virtually every time. That's actually in the best case because sometimes it results in the death of the person who doesn't have the protection of the vehicle. And so it's really just the word of the person who killed the other person. If there's no cameras um, or witnesses, that may be it. So what I would say is let's back up and, and just try to prevent this in the first place so that we don't have these very difficult to resolve disputes. When you when you reference firearms, uh, you know, and, and their prevalence and incidents of road rage, maybe most especially but not limited to the United States. Do you see parallels between vehicles and firearms? I see a lot of parallels between vehicles and firearms. Um, both of them are a lot more benign when you have more space. So if you're out in the country and you're, you know, certainly, again, I know the politics of the U.S. better than Canada, but I, I understand in Alberta, for example, it's not all that different. You're sitting out there in the country. You've got a couple acres of land. You've got five guns and, you know, several tractors and a couple of cars. It's hard to see why, um, people should be able to walk in the street or why guns would be problematic, right? You're just like, that's how you get rid of varmints. And that's, mm. if you have an intruder, it's going to take the police half an hour to get there. When you're in Toronto, when you're in Vancouver, when you're in Edmonton, um, it, it's a bit different, right? So obviously with guns, uh, there's an old expression that in the law that uh, your right to swing your fist ends where another man's nose begins, and that's that principle is just obviously true for guns. You can go and shoot stuff out in the country, no problem, uh, or at a target range with a, in a more careful situation, closed situation. You want to start 
firing, doing target practice in Central Park in Manhattan. That's obviously something that the other people around there have a, have a, a right to enjoy protection from. And I would say the same for cars. We actually lose more people to cars in the U.S. every year than guns, believe it or not. Hmm. So do you believe I mean, when it when it comes to this intimidation and and how it's I mean, I think the Charlottesville incident, when you reference that, I feel like everybody, as I say it, I have this visceral recollection. Right. I mean, that video that that Dodge Charger, I think it is that, that just goes roaring through a crowd and you see the dust and the mayhem and you kind of just like it's like one of the worst things you'll ever see an intentional act of first degree murder mm-hmm. um, what explains to you how this intimidation is 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 now shifting like did it did a switch flick i mean you 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 mentioned off the top you say well these references that i cite these i don't want to call them news events these crimes um you say these are just the most recent examples was there something that happened was was, was there is there something that's gone that's happened with 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 people's psyche is has there been this de-evolution of sorts that's a great question. Unfortunately, it's one of these cases where we don't have a lot of data. Mm. So if you wanted to go back, say, 20 years, um, to the extent things like this were happening, they were just much less likely to be captured on video. Right. Um, that's, you know, I, I, I'm reluctant to um, speculate without kind of hard evidence. It does seem as though there is an uptick in the precise thing that you're describing, where you have intentional assaults with vehicles on groups of protesters. And I think you can trace that increase to um, the starting the start of the Black Lives Matter uh, movement about six years ago. Ari Weil, who was a terrorism researcher at the University of Chicago, he's been tracking these um, deliberate uh, assaults for, for some time. And, you know, I think that's that's the that's commonly the, the starting point that's used and then increasing with our our most recent uh, former president. Um, but the, you know, the, uh, as egregious as all of that is, we have many more types of instance instances of this that don't show up on TV because, you know, the Charlottesville case from a prosecutor's perspective is a gift, right? You've got somebody who's, um, a provable white nationalist who is driving into a crowd of peaceful protesters. It's all on video. It's just a lot easier to imagine uh, if you're in a jury box, putting that person in jail, because you can just say that's not an accident. That's a crime. Right. Like you said, um, if you have a case uh, like many other types of cases where somebody is struck, but you don't find KKK memorabilia at their house and they don't confess and there isn't video. Right. And the victim doesn't live to tell the story or didn't see the crime uh, when it happened. Um, These are the things that are happening kind of under the radar right now. Uh, I've got a, a a powerful comment here from one of our regular audience members, Fatima, and and if she'll forgive me, I think it it is potentially relevant uh, to mention that that she wears a hijab. Uh, I'm not uh, to, for context for you, Greg. I mean, in, in Edmonton, our home province of Alberta, and across the country for that matter, I referenced that tragedy in London, Ontario, as well. Um, Muslim people, in particular women, have been targeted as of late acts of of, of brazen violence. Um, several of them in parking lots outside schools, shopping malls, etc. She says uh, car violence is becoming increasingly terrifying. She says just the other day I was crossing a parking lot to go to Home Depot and a truck driver revved the engine. She says I was immobilized. Like you can imagine how terrifying that might be. 
how do we do? Uh, and again, you're coming to us from the University of Iowa. But I mean, you know, as kindred spirits, as geographical brethren, if you will, Americans and Canadians, as as best you can comment uh, legislatively and otherwise, how do we do in in curbing this or in, in trying to get a handle on this? I mean, how how well equipped are we to address this trend of vehicular intimidation? Um, well, first of all, let me just say to your listener, Fatima, I'm so sorry that that happened to you. And I do know that this is happening with increasing frequency and it's terrible. Um, and we ought to take this problem seriously. Um, in the U.S., going back some time now, there's evidence that um, drivers don't stop as often for black pedestrians, for example, as for white pedestrians. Um, and not because they're even necessarily deliberately trying to attack them in every instance, but um, there is just less respect for black people by uh, motorists at large. This has been documented on many occasions. And so we see it in those kind of maybe subconscious cases. And we see it in deliberate examples like what um, Fatima is describing and what that poor family experienced um, recently in Canada. And um, so I think the first step is to realize that this is a real problem. And it's got two components, right? The first component is racism and intolerance. And the second component is the use of a sometimes benign object, sometimes useful object, right, as a weapon. And that is how cars bear a resemblance to guns, right? Um, the difference is that even in the U.S., where we famously have lax gun regulation, we actually take gun crime a lot more seriously than we do crime with cars. Um, so for example, if you commit just about any offense while you're in possession of a gun, even a non-working gun, uh, even if you don't wield the gun, you get an automatic sentencing enhancement uh, in federal law and in most states. Even if that gun is broken, doesn't function, even if it's not loaded, um, you will automatically, it's automatically more serious crime. In, with cars, it's kind of the opposite, right? Um, if uh, somebody strikes a group of people who maybe you're wearing hijabs um, and somebody claims that it's intentional, they can say, I didn't see them. You know, the sun was in my eyes or um, they were wearing dark clothing. Like your the clip you played from Brent, right? Yeah. Um, they were wearing dark clothing. What was, I, I couldn't see them. What was I supposed to do? And deep down, we know that that's possible. And so that's why it's important um, to do all these things up front to make those conflicts less likely. So taking cars out of city centers or, or at least reducing the number of cars that are in right in very dense places, like right in downtown Toronto, um, taking enforcement seriously. And that does not mean armed enforcement by police officers necessarily. It can be automated enforcement, which, which is very successful when done right. Um, there's a lot of evidence on that. Um, and taking uh, race-specific intimidation as a serious, for the seriousness that it deserves um, and targeting those types of offenders aggressively. When you talk about automated enforcement, are you uh, I don't even know if I want to open up this can of worms. Are you talking about things like photo radar speed enforcement? Yeah, speed cameras and um, red light cameras. Look, nobody likes them. But let's be honest. Um, you and I, Ryan, are less likely. Again, I'll speak for the U.S., but people who look like you in the U.S., people who look like me in the U.S. are a lot less likely to be pulled over for speeding by a cop than are um, people who uh, look different than us. Yeah. And so what these uh, enforcement mechanisms do is, number one, they eliminate that bias. And number two, they eliminate the armed conflicts element where you have an armed officer of the state 
physically apprehending somebody and detaining them, uh, introducing all the problems that that introduces. I have had a million, literally, no, I'm just, I've, I've had probably literally a hundred on air conversations about photo radar. I, I am in staunch opposition to it. However, I acknowledge that I argue from a point of weakness. As a matter of fact, all of my arguments are piss poor. Um, I just don't like it. You're right. But let me say this. I have never. This is the very first time that I have heard someone make an insightful comment, a, a race related comment about automated speed enforcement. You've actually just blown my mind a little bit. And and after this interview, when I continue to think about this, I've got a whole new idea of on a whole new. I mean, you've actually really I'm almost embarrassed that I've not thought of that before. When you talk about when you talk about eliminating the armed conflict, of course, that's not on my radar because I'm not the guy that gets shot in the driver's seat reaching for my insurance. I'm not the guy that that happens to tragically. And I'm not meaning to be glib. You've made the point very clearly and I think very fairly. My argument has always been around the fact that automated enforcement, like you said, eliminates the enforcement officer at the point of ticketing. And I've always thought that that's a lost opportunity, whether it's an impaired driver, whether it's a stolen vehicle, whether there's an Amber alert. I mean, obviously, I'm being somewhat, uh, you know, uh, preposterous here in, in some of those scenarios, but you never know. Right. You never know. I mean, if we think about how many arrests have happened um, coming from traffic stops, I would imagine it's not negligible. But I've never heard the flip side like you just put. I'm grateful that you did that. It's something that, you know, people like us have to think about, I think, in a deliberate way, because it may not always come to us automatically. Yeah, I'm grateful for that. Let, let me ask you, uh, I, I can't help. I, I, we can't end without me asking you this, because I imagine you'll have a completely different take. A guy like you with your background, your expertise, your focus here and as a law professor too. what how do you envision things changing in the context of our conversation with the onset, the advent, the adoption of self-driving cars? Yeah. I was hoping you weren't going to go there. I can't, um, I can't help only, myself. Oh, well, uh, I'll, I'll tell you, Ryan. I recently purchased the most successful self-driving vehicle in history, okay. which is the Roomba. Oh, yes. And uh, we haven't, my wife and I haven't taken it out of the box yet, but once we do, we're excited to experience all that self-driving technology is currently able to offer just about. I'm exaggerating, but only a little. Um, so I would argue self-driving cars uh, actually go back about 100 years to a Canadian by the name of Alfred Munro who invented the automatic transmission in 1922 or 23. And um, we had, you can find advertisements from the early 1960s that promise quote, radar guided cars um, that uh, create quote, jam proof expressways and um, never crash into each other. The ad I'm thinking of was placed in Pennsylvania in 1964. Um, so, you know, we've been seeing this promised for a long time. Um, there's a great quote that in uh, 2017, self-driving cars were two years away. And in 2019, they uh, were five years away. I think in 2021, they might be 20 or 30 years away. And look, I'd love to not have to pay attention while I'm behind the wheel just as much as anybody else. But um, I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. We can't. We certainly can't wait for it. In the U.S., we're losing 40,000 people a year to car crashes. We can't just sit around waiting another 100 years for this. Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm uh, that's that's a. What do I call you? I, I often type my, my friends will say to me, you're a pessimist. I say I'm a realist and there's a difference between a pessimist and a realist. Um, 
yours uh, is an interesting counterbalance to the assertion, you know, when we talk about, for example, the, the future of transportation when it comes to maybe trucking or transporting goods. Um, you know, if, if you talk to some folks, they'll they'll tell you that, you know, getting involved in a polytechnic school or getting certified as a trucker these days is a fool's errand because in the next five years, all the big rigs are going to be self-driving. I have a hard time believing that. I mean, five years is what one Olympics away from now. I'm not sure about that, but I also see folks. I mean, uh, you know, there was a high, relatively high profile incident in our home province last summer of a guy that w- was pulled over having a nap behind the wheel of his Tesla on the highway, like literally having a nap. Um, irresponsible, sure. Appealing, undoubtedly. Yeah, I see the appeal. I think, um, you know, the Tesla frame is is a good one uh they were on the front page of the new york times either today or yesterday for their quote autopilot deaths they've been marketing their driver assist features as self-driving they even call it full self-driving and so now they're being sued by lots of families um the sec has looked into the representation of full self-driving as to whether that's uh, i understand anyway that they um have interest in that uh, and then various other regulators as well. So, you know, I think people are using that technology in a way that is not safe right now. And Tesla is encouraging that to be fair though, they are, um, at the unsafe end. There are a lot of AV developers that are a lot more responsible than Tesla. Um, and they are looking at things like trucking, um, because it tends to be mostly on these interstates where there's more lanes and there's, uh, it's grade separated. You don't have as much um, cross traffic. You have no cross traffic versus the city street. So we may see some of that. Uh, I got to say in Iowa, we have the world's largest truck stop and that place is not getting any less busy. Yeah. Um, I stop there every time I drive to Chicago and um, it's, you know, you see posters up there paying six figures for truck drivers. You know, yeah. it's a hard profession to recruit and um, it's understandable. They'd want to try to automate it, but we'll see. We'll see. Uh, Gregory Schill is a law professor at the University of Iowa College of Law. He's an expert, uh, an expert, obviously, on on transportation law and policy. You can read his work most recently in The Atlantic. You'll also find him uh, published in The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal. He's been on ABC, NPR. And now, my man, you can add real talk to the list. Thanks for this. It's been a great chat. Thanks, Ryan. Yeah, you bet. Great to be with you. Um, Greg, man, I, I you know what? I'm honestly I'm dead serious. That, that kind of did. I had a bit of a Bill and Ted whoa moment there. <laughs> I've and, and this is I don't mean to, it, it's kind of strange when we're joking about something that's very serious. Uh, but, you know, candidly, I, I'm actually embarrassed that and, and maybe this is sort of a shot. You know, some people roll their eyes, but this is this is called privilege, right? That that's never occurred to me that photo radar, a person of color, a young black male, you wonder if if he gets a photo radar ticket in the mail in the letterbox may mm. may sit there and say, thank God I wasn't pulled over <laughs> like that hasn't even occurred to me. I've always just thought photo radar is lazy policing. Yeah, it works. Where does it works in a way? But you know, you know, what it works. It works. Should I really go off on this big rant? It works to get people slamming on their brakes for for 80 meters. And then as soon as people get out of the photo radar zone, what do they do? And then they're gone again. So that that's what it works in. Mm-hmm. And there are these vision zero campaigns and like mayors and city councilors will say it works. And here's the data. And I don't know. It just feels to me. It, it feels to me like I'd rather see more police officers on the street conducting traffic stops. But again, why? Because I'm not the guy 
Let me tell you a story in two sentences. I used to drive a car that it didn't really fit me. This is going to be a big, long run on sentence. This is like this is uh, this is uh, semicolons, hyphens, commas. I was counting. So am I, I already? Like, am I still on sentence number one? I'm still on sentence. I think we're in sentence zero. I used to far. drive a vehicle that was uncharacteristic yeah. of me. The vehicle found me in life, as sometimes these things do. Highly customized, very sexy to look at. The type of vehicle that could be stereotyped with regards to the type of driver that may be behind the wheel. I'm being as careful as possible in stating this. Slammed to the ground, big, beautiful wheels, carbon fiber accents through the body. If you're a car person, you're envisioning what I'm talking about. It's the type of vehicle you'd call a sleeper. It had this purr as it would fire up. It had plenty of jam passing power on the highways. But the kind of vehicle that may be owned and driven by a younger person, probably not a middle-aged, middle-class guy like me. I remember once I was pulled over rather aggressively. Mm. Like pulled over rather like sort of a like one of these sort of out of the movies pull over. And I was kind of like, oh, kind of like, you know, literally cop comes to the window, roll the window down. He goes, huh, you're good left. I was like, what? Hmm. And like, who knows? Maybe they were looking for that specific. But maybe, maybe my vehicle fit a description. I recognize that was like 11 sentences, not two. But maybe my vehicle fit the description of a vehicle they were looking for. But. I didn't get that sense. <laughs> I just, I really appreciate you being willing to, you know, reflect. And when you talk about privilege, you know, some people can get their nose out of joint being like white privilege. I've, I've, I've struggled in my life. And it's like, sure. Yeah. I, I, yes. As a white person, as a settler, sure. Yes, there are struggles, but the fact that you are able to, um, pause, mm. And look at that and see that, oh, it's because I haven't had to have that on my mind as well as all the other things. So, yeah. And so people are going to process things. I mean, this is the most obvious thing I'm going to say all day, but people will process things uh, from 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 the micro conversations Mm. to the macro conversations based on their personal experience. Absolutely. Right. And that's always what I'm so disappointed with people. It's like, so you only care if it happens to you? Really? (laughs) And that tends to be because, yeah, we're very, you know, self-centric. So I I really appreciated watching you uh, reflect on that. And I had never thought of that. I mean, I'm not I'm kind of like, oh, it's annoying when I get that uh, photo radar ticket in the mail. Like it just kicks me off. But and I'd I'd never considered um, what it would be like to be a person of color and to avoid that that interaction and i think that he you know there's not you know oftentimes he's there and go look at america like thank goodness we're not like america right but that's not always the case we have our own issues but interesting yeah. to get that american perspective right i mean it, he, a lot of what he has to say is is and but again also iowa so not mm. not manhattan right so he's got a, yeah really interesting perspective there I, I really appreciated that and i thought that that was a great like sharon uh, an audience member here um sharon shared with us before her metis heritage she says it's different if my sons get pulled over right mm. so um keep the comments coming we really appreciate uh everything that you have to say here <laughs> Jeez, my whole like I, you know i'm a little ticked off at you sarah as a matter of fact because i did not expect this interview to now further complicate my thoughts on photo radar damn it 
I also love that it it got some people revved up about Roombas. Some people are like, ah, they're awful. I've Roombas are off. How can they be awful? These are the what? <laughs> what's what's the problem with Roombas? I've never had one, so I don't know. You know, I'll tell you why I do not have one. These are for, for anybody that doesn't know. They have a little docking station. They're typically like the size of a dinner plate or a bit bigger, and they make their way around on a schedule and vacuum your room, right? And I've they bounce around seemingly at random, but I think that they actually you can do. Anyways, patterns not and important. all kinds of things. If they want us to talk more about it, they can buy some fucking advertising. <laughs> um, but but seriously, um, I've never I've never even serious. I've never gotten past the huh, stage with regards to things like Roombas because of our dogs and what I think that they would do to the Roomba when it started moving. I don't I, think the Roomba would survive. I uh, have. It's a it's a it's a different it's I mean, we're using Roomba like as a as like, like a Google Kleenex or, or, yeah. or Q tip or jet ski. Yeah, yeah, so exactly. like all things. Or Google. Yeah. So had one. First dog, Emma, Emma Lou. She didn't give a damn about the Roomba. Did not care. Emma was chill. She was super chill. Um sure she'd move if it kinda got close to her, but Ranger like is out for blood. Yes. So it's now been retired. Is it's, it? Is it's it gone over to my mom's is house it now? Fair for me, or does this annoy you? Uh oh. When we're talking about Ranger, to point out that he's got some pity in him. Is that like pit? I'm not talking pity. Like he feels sorry for people. <laughs> he's he a, also does. He's a very is he a pit, empathetic. He's a, he's a mixed breed, or is he a pit bull? But he's he's got that. Is that? And I can see you right now. Are like you son of a. But it hey. Is it worth mentioning? Like, to me, it changes the game if someone says, oh, I don't want to buy a Roomba because my dog will attack it. What do you have? A dachshund. Or what do you have? A pit bull. Dachshunds can be vicious. Dachshunds. The reason I intentionally named them is because they bite on average more frequently than any other breed. The, the wiener dogs. But when a pit bull bites, it's a different story. I don't hate on pit bulls, but it, the reality is they're a little, it's a little bit of a different game, isn't it? Um, well, there are, do you really want to get into this? Well, I'm just, it's a simple question. Is it, is it stigmatizing for me to point out that, yes. if, that if a pit, that if a pit bull attacks a Roomba, it's a different reality than if a Chihuahua does? See, I thought what you were referencing is that it's, it's because he's a pit bull that he's, nope. he's making, nope. and Emma was not, she was Rottweiler, Blue Healer-ish. I am nurture, not nature cool. on dogs. Okay. I am nurture, not nature. So yes, uh, Ranger, <laughs> all things moving. So uh, shovels, shoveling the walk is entertaining, <laughs> but challenging. You need to teach him to shovel. You're like, buddy, you have 2,000 pounds per square inch with that jaw. You need to just clamp down on the shovel and run back and forth. I mean, yeah. if you can teach your pit bull to shovel the walk, I don't know what. Then you've taught your pit bull to shovel the walk. Congratulations. <laughs> The team at Eden Landscaping, I mean, rain or shine, they're at it right now. LandscapeEdmonton.ca is where you can go. It's kind of the source to see what they've been doing for the last 20 years as they bring outdoor spaces to life. Uh, I mean, we mentioned all of the different things that they do because I think sometimes when you're looking out into your own space, it may not occur to you that Eden Landscaping could be solving the problems that exist right now. Do you have one of those backyards, quite frankly, like we do, that if you see three or four days of rain in a row, part of that backyard is going to be under underwater like major drainage problems it's not a fancy landscaping fix it's a practical one we've already had mike out to look at it and he and the team at eden i mean that's the kind of stuff they do retaining walls whether they're decorative supportive or otherwise 
they've been solving problems for people for two decades. You can find them online, Eden Landscaping at landscapeedmonton.ca. You can also, while you're online, I mean, if your family's considering a move this summer, congratulations, first of all. We know that it's moving season, but that doesn't mean that all the stress just evaporates. Unless you move with Alta Moving and Storage. They're Edmonton's number one portable storage and moving service for a reason. They've got these pod-style moving containers, so they drop them off at your house and you fill them up at your convenience. They move it at your convenience. You unpack it at your convenience. Convenience? I know. I didn't think anybody would be able to put that one together, so I wanted to just really reiterate that they are all about convenience. At altastorage.ca. You make sure you tell them that Real Talk sent you. Uh, excited to get a chance to, to talk to Joshua Collins. You'll remember we, we talked Columbia with reporter and podcaster Richard McCall on the state of Columbia on June 15th. Josh is going to join us a little later on in the show today. He's a freelance journalist focused on Latin America. He's based in Columbia. Uh, you may have read his work in Vice, USA Today, and Al Jazeera. It's been more than two months since the start of a nationwide protest movement calling for social reform. And he's going to give us a sense of, I mean, the statue of Christopher Columbus has come down in Columbia. Yeah. I've been trying to, I was thinking about this this morning as we were having a coffee. We're sitting here kind of in the quiet of the Real Talk studio in the in the hour before we go live. And, and I was sitting there thinking to myself, what would you say has been the most significant statue to come down? I mean, I think... Saddam Hussein coming down is like this iconic that one. Was epic. But if you think about now, now people are going to people will write in and say, are you are you comparing Saddam Hussein to Christopher Columbus? Are you comparing Christopher Columbus to Queen Victoria? Are you comparing Queen Victoria? Maybe that's not as much of a stretch. Are you comparing Christopher Columbus to Winston Churchill? Are you comparing, uh, you know, Saddam Hussein to Sir John A. Macdonald? Like, are, are we really going to try to have one? singular conversation about statues coming down. But what you can't ignore, I mean, the Saddam example aside, hard to believe that was like early 1990s. I remember collecting Operation Desert Storm trading cards. How how weird is that? I was terrified. I have a Storm and Norman Schwarzkopf trading card. Like, is that worth $10,000 right now? Probably more. (laughs) Hey, kids, get your war trading cards. What? But aside from that, which was like 30 years ago, hard to believe. I mean, it's happening. It's happening. And I, and I don't know where when it comes to significance, Christopher Columbus coming down in Columbia. The namesake. This is a pretty big one. So that conversation in just a little bit. We also promised you that we would get to, uh, you know, we would revisit our unofficial, unscientific Twitter poll, which is, has now wrapped up. And so uh, you can see this here. Let me let me share my screen. Um, we asked you very simply yesterday by way of my Twitter account at Ryan Jesperson, should churches pay taxes in Canada? Now, houses of worship, if I were to look back, I'd probably change the wording because I didn't want this to become some sort of a, uh, you know, debate about, well, is, you know, is, you know, yesterday, for example, um, you know, the, the, the allegation or the assertion that this was an anti-religious bias uh, infused into the anti-Christian bias yeah. a few infused into the conversation. I mean, the, the quick response is, no, it's not. It's a talk show and we talk about things. Mm. But but I probably should have done a better job 
of clarifying that we're talking, we're not focusing this just on the Catholic Church or just on people of the Christian faith, but should houses of worship, should religious communities um, fall under the same uh, sort of tax requirements as nonprofits, or should they pay full-blown income tax? And we got some really interesting comments, as a matter of fact, several hundred of them over the course of our different tweets. But, but here's where the numbers are at. Our final results, 4,078 of you uh, cast a vote, which we appreciate, and the number... As boring as this is to point out, did not change one bit from one minute into that poll. Approximately 90 percent. I think the lowest. It, I mean, I was dropping in through the day just to keep a look. The the, the lowest it dropped was 88 percent. Yes. The highest it was was about where it wrapped up, which is just under 91 percent. So it was in that sweet spot. And then look at that. A direct high. Four point seven percent said no way. In other words, they should maintain a tax free status. And 4.7% also said, well, it depends. Hmm. And they explained below. Now, we don't have time to, to read. And, and some of them, I mean, some of these comments I, I would like to say are, are worth a read because I, 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 you know, I commend the people that, that stuck around for pretty respect. I mean, it's a little snark. Maybe that's fine. It's social media. There's nothing wrong with a little snark. But for the most part, respectful dialogue. And people were debating it and sort of hashing it out as part of the replies. Don't ever be afraid to remove my account from your strings of replies, though. Let me also point that out. If, 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 it's, a, it's a fancy little feature. You if, can click on it and then you just click the box. Take the little check yeah, mark. Or just, just remove me. If, if, if you've sent about 25 unanswered tweets to a media personality, chances are. Uh, but I digress. I asked for the feedback and here it is. So Jessica chimed in and she says, yes. Now, this is her personal opinion. I love this. She's like used the Google Maps to show us. She says there are many churches in my area. People aren't going to like to hear this. She says you provide no value to the local community. She says, in fact, all they do is cause traffic issues once a week. They're located tax free on prime real estate that could be used for housing or businesses. I mean, that might be sort of an extreme comment in the sense of there's an implication there that if you got rid of churches, you could build houses or businesses there. I'm not sure that we're swinging so far that way, but but interesting point from Jessica. She's talking when she says tax-free, not just of income tax when it comes to the federal government as well, but of course on property taxes. And that's what you pointed out. Um, you know, I mean, there, there have been some conversations in some Canadian jurisdictions, including up north, where they're saying it's, it's time to change how property taxes are working with houses of worship. Yeah, in Iqaluit, they were yeah. talking about it. And I mean, to me, I think that's... That's part of the conversation, but the mayor there was the one that was saying we need to not, uh, we need to inst, inst, what do I, how do I want to say it? Put in place taxes yeah. Yeah. for for churches, and that's within his jurisdiction. So he has can he has kind of like can not control because he's got to work with the council. But <laughs> I always think it's interesting when when you have uh, elected officials that start to float ideas like mm. this because these can be extremely unpopular ideas. Like, well, as you mentioned yesterday, you're like, yeah, right. Anybody in the, any federal party is ever going to say anything right? about that. So you look at our Twitter poll and if you were to provide that to a politician and if and if you were to say, um, you know, we've we've got data here from 4000 respondents, 90 percent of whom say they believe that churches should pay more tax. Uh, that politician may feel quite bold uh, in his or her you know, assertion that they should do exactly that. And that will be part of my platform and move forward. But I guarantee it would blow up in their face. 
I just feel like it's one of those things. I mean, the argument yesterday, which was an interesting one, was like, it's not that much. We're talking about like, you know, less than five billion dollars across the country. I'm going five billion is a lot of money. Uh, but at the same time, is it worth it for a federal politician where the where the budget is going to be 100 times that? I mean, not actually, but, you know, I mean, is it worth it? Probably not. It's probably well, not. like as far as their political career, probably not. And how they could be painted. Right. Right. However, he's the guy that taxed churches. Right. He's the guy that attacked freedom of religion. He's the guy, you know, right. The secular humanist. Yeah, I I can hear it all right now. I I guess it's just to me, I think about those dollars and, um, you know, the shortfalls that we do experience. And uh, and so I'm yeah, I'm just. I, I just I really wonder where that money could go. Yeah. Sherry says, um, you know, charitable acts that aid society can be interpreted as beneficial. We can appreciate these as tax deductible. Alternatively, there were several people that was kind of a recurring comment. People are saying churches should should pay income tax and then deduct from their income tax acts of charity like any other business or any other organization. Um, Sherry goes on to say, alternatively, there are aspects of advancement of religion, which was terminology that came up and became relevant yesterday, that go so far as being predatory and should not be interpreted as beneficial to society and must be taxed. Hear this. Nikki with an E says, yeah, they can get tax credits for real charity work they do, but they should pay taxes like any other organizations. Uh, She says, by the way, gets in a shot here. Uh, By the way, organizations like the Fraser Institute should not be considered a charity. That from Nikki with an E. Uh, Bakesy says, I've been saying it for years. It's like it's like we're, we're hanging out in like a hockey locker room. It's like Nikki and Bakesy and <laughs> like all these Bakesy says, I've been saying it for years. I've only been met with churchgoers telling me the church does a lot for the community. Well, so do a lot of other people and a lot of other organizations that pay taxes for, for their small or large buildings and properties. Owen chimed in to say as an lgbtq plus person says owen my thought is if churches and religious groups can fund hate groups with intentions to strip me of my human rights it would be nice if those groups could be taxed so that the hate they are advancing could be stopped personal perspective there jason says all churches any place of worship should be run as a nonprofit. and then we had like marticus and luke for that matter Audience members that are saying, boy, I would have loved to have been your guest for this conversation. Boy, I would have loved to be in on that one. Like Alex watched the debate and Alex said, I'm watching it right now, Jespo, and uh, I'm assuming on our YouTube channel. And he says, and I'm, I'm getting aggravated at all of the gaslighting. He says that the one guy is too busy talking about the good provided by churches, completely sidestepping the fact they could easily continue doing good, even if they were taxed. Every other charitable organization does it. Why can't religious organizations? They've had a few centuries of head start level the playing field. So people have the option to go to a charity that's not trying to bring you into their religion. An interesting one from Sarge. You don't see this every day on social media. Sarge says, I've changed my mind. The advancement of religion should be taxed. You know, we have a separate church and state. So let's generate some revenue. <laughs> if you put it that way, that's. A... Yeah, Luke went on to say, Luke, by the way, Luke Fevin, uh, you know, he's a he's a how would you describe him? He's a he's like a secular rights advocate. He's like a secular advocate. Um, you can follow him on Twitter at according to Luke. He says, I'm all for churches receiving charitable tax benefits for specific charitable works, just like everybody else. 
But the state granting blanket privilege merely for advancement of religion contravenes our separation of church and state. And he says the Supreme Court of Canada says that the state must be neutral. And this isn't Uh, from Luke. An interesting one. I would imagine that we'll probably, you know, the way that this works, typically, if we have like a, uh, you know, we'll, we'll put out one of these impromptu Twitter polls that really catch on and get people talking. You know how the trend goes is we'll get hit up on our hashtag and then no doubt 24, 36, 48 hours later, the emails will start to come in because I know that you walk with it just like I do. I'm going to be walking with the photo radar thing today for a while. Whatever's on your mind, we welcome your emails to talk at ryanjesperson.com is a great way to have your say, to have input onto the editorial direction of the show. We read a lot into those emails, into how you're feeling, how you're sorting through things. I mean, a lot of times the best emails are, are ones that say, why aren't you guys talking about this? Those are some of the most welcome emails we receive. You can be in touch anytime. And if you're forgetting, I mean, if you feel like you're spelling my last name wrong, if you want to... Just go to ryanjesperson.com, all E's, no O's, ryanjesperson.com, and click Talk to Us, and that'll take you right to our email link. I wanted to remind you that the team at Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge, uh, they've been in the business, the hauling business, the towing business, so to speak, for years. It's why more Albertans have gone to Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge for Ram trucks than anywhere else. They're known across the province for their selection, and that's more relevant now than perhaps ever before. Shortages of microchips and other contributing factors mean that Well, it means that car lots have way fewer vehicles than they normally would. This Have you noticed that driving past them at Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge? They share their inventory. They can shuttle vehicles back and forth so you get the exact one you're looking for, whether it's that famous Ram 1500 half ton or those big heavy haulers, the one ton dualies. If you've got a boat, a trailer, a fifth wheel, a flat deck, a toy hauler or anything else that you need to get out into the back country and to crown land, whatever your family's plans are this summer. Make sure you check out the inventory online at Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge. Also, big shout out to the teams at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. A bit of a divisive exercise yesterday. I asked you all to chime in on on the proper way to eat a Buster Bar. Uh, it was it was a, it was a divisive conversation in our own backyard at home. But but fun little arguments over ice cream are the best, aren't they? Have a fun little family argument over ice cream in your backyard by visiting the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park, Palisades, Nemeo, Newcastle, Westmount, Y Gardens, and Baseline Road. And always let your family member win the argument. Deep down inside, you know you're still right. The team at Kubi Energy each and every Monday morning presents positive reflections. Speaking of emails that we receive, if something's made your day, we want to hear about it. Send us an email in the subject line, put positive reflections. Next Monday, Kubi's rolling out a very cool contest we're really excited to put in front of Real Talkers. Somebody's going to win big. Kubi's got teams of solar installers working across Western Canada right now, proudly based out of Edmonton and Kamloops. They're Tesla certified. If you can imagine it, they can make it happen. The team at Kubi does a great job of pointing out some of the subsidies, some of the bursaries, some of the refunds and rebates you can collect to make your sustainable energy goals more attainable than ever before. Check out kubienergy.ca. 
Is Joshua Collins uh, ready to rock, Sam? Okay, that'll come up in the, in the next few minutes. I know that we're going to get into that interesting conversation about what's going on in Colombia. We like to have, I mean, this is a big part of a show like this, is we want to make sure that we're doing follow-ups. So we'll touch on a story, and then we want the audience to have confidence that as news develops, so to speak, or as the tide turns, that it's something that we're continuing to keep an eye on. Uh, we're also a little bit later on in the show going to be uh, checking. I've never had an opportunity before uh, to interview Natalia Buendia. She's a, a cannabis reporter, which is a pretty interesting beat. <laughs> A cannabis, cannabis reporter and psychedelics, cannabis and psychedelics for Mugglehead.com, which is an online publication focusing on the cannabis and psychedelic industries. And for whoever's saying uh, the psychedelic industry, you wait. I mean, we may not have self-driving cars in five years. Psychedelics mainstream, I think, are really moving in that direction. We had an interesting roundtable a few months ago now. Uh, I guess it was, but uh, but on on shrooms, man. That's what it was about. It was about shrooms, uh, about psychedelics, and, and a fascinating area of study. Mexico es- essentially legalizing uh, pot. What was it that caught your attention? Like, I mean, you're the one making these editorial. You're the gatekeeper. Uh, what was it about this story that that sort of captured your attention? Well, I I wasn't aware that it. A, I, I didn't know about what the status was on of marijuana, of cannabis in, in Mexico. Um, and so seeing it pop up and seeing it, it being covered that, you know, legislation, they're looking at the Supreme Court. It had been about three years delayed. And then, yes, it looks like they're moving forward. And then I started digging and it looks like uh, Zimbabwe is looking at uh, legalizing uh, cannabis, as is Portugal. So it's, uh, and I mean, there's Canada. And then I was thinking, mind blowing, what's going to happen in the States? Because yeah. Canada is legal, Mexico, it's legal, not so legal. Yeah. In individual states, it is. I mean, it's really, it's really interesting in yeah, the US. Yeah, federally, right? federally, it's federally, not. Federally, it's prohibited. Yeah. And, and, and in many states, it's been legalized, and you get these really interesting uh, debates and, and sometimes. Um, you know, sort of headline flare-ups of, of of jurisdictional questions when the ATF becomes involved, or the yeah. F- and, I mean, all all kinds of interesting stuff. So so we'll look forward to that conversation. I don't know. I mean, the idea of like wh- what will this do to the black market, or what will this do right. to, to the you know the cartels? Um, I have a really hard time believing. You know, you, you have conversations all the time about legal cannabis in Canada, and and you know what what has changed over the past number of years. When was it legalized? 2018, was that right? 2017, 2018, something like that. It's been legal for a few years now. It was like October. I think it was October 17th of 2018, wasn't it? Uh, You're uh, amazing that you can... Well, I remember because it was the... Uh, I think it was, yeah, it was October 17th, 2018. That was the, the one-year anniversary of Gord Downey's passing, I believe, uh, if I remember correctly. And, and, and that was the day. And, and I think a lot of people were expecting... Um, you know, I think a lot more impaired driving. Mm-hmm. Cannabis, that was the biggest fear. That was I one think. of the big ones, right? Yeah. Cannabis impaired driving. And you saw a lot of um, police departments and the Canadian Association of Police Chiefs at that time had said, we're not adequately prepared for this. We don't have proper roadside testing. We don't have you know the proper equipment. Um, there was a real lack of sympathy, I think, for a lot of people on that front saying, um, should we not have had proper or adequate roadside testing equipment before cannabis was legalized like are we are we implying that we thought nobody was was smoking and driving or smoking and flying as people joke nothing funny about it um you know i mean i've never heard that before oh it was always like you know the the, you know the t-shirt 
you know, you, you always get these people where it's like a funny T-shirt, but you're like, that's actually a terrible message. <laughs> like, why drink and drive when you can smoke and fly? Like those T-shirts? No, that's just me. Yeah, it's like you the people I, that say don't drink and drive, you might spill your drink. Yes, exactly. Like those people. Ex- those people. Yeah, and like that that guy, that guy that shows up at the barbecue with that T-shirt, and you're like, like ha, but like <laughs> really, you know. It's like gonna be there's like one person at the party that like just lost a loved one to a drunk driver and you're wearing that fucking shirt. Like it just sometimes you're kind of like whatever. But I will say that I mean anecdotally, anecdotally has anything really changed since cannabis. I mean now, now we'll get we'll get some insight. Uh, coming up in about 20 minutes from from Natalia, and I'm looking forward to that conversation about what she expects, you know, th- this may do or how the how the sort of the landscape may change in Mexico, but in Canada now we're we're at three and a half years legal, and aside from legal cannabis shops, which still when I drive by I'm like, man, that still kind of just seems a little. It's pretty wild. A little wild. Yeah. Seems a little strange. But really, has society changed at all? I mean, my world has not changed. So in my little sh- sphere, I would say no. I mean, other than <laughs> oh, I had some people that lived next door to me. Uh, I'm I've since moved. And they just, yeah, were lighting up yeah. all hours of the day. And it was going straight into my house. And I'd be like, Please. For free. Like, you didn't even have to pay for it. Yeah, that's right. That's so, <laughs> it's so generous of them. It's amazing. Wow. You know how you had that kind of like epiphany moment yes. with the You've, photo radar? Now I have had the epiphany. You're welcome. <laughs> you, never, you never saw it as a gift, did you? That that, that free cannabis smoke was making its way into your living I, room windows. I am going to sound like a grumpy, grumpy person, but I hate the smell. Yeah. I, I, it actually, to me, is like if you took nails on a chalkboard and made it a smell. <laughs> really? It, it ju- it's like it's, it, I have a very. I, Do you feel the same? Would you, would you prefer if you had to smell cannabis smoke or, or cigarette smoke? Cigarette smoke. You would rather smell cigarette smoke than cannabis smoke? Yeah. Wow. Wow. Sam, would you say, do you feel like society, this is, this is an anecdotal exercise. This is, this is obviously not scientific. We're not going to come out and someone say, well, actually, as a matter of fact, 14% of drivers, like anecdotally, do you believe anything has, has dramatically changed or is Canada dramatically different from before to when after cannabis was legalized? No, I think we're in about the same place. I yeah. think it's, I mean, like I said, you put aside your, your thoughts on whether you use it or not. It's really more of a, this the substance that was everywhere is now just in the legal sphere. What's changed is there's weed stores everywhere. That's what's changed. Yeah, that that literally materially seems to be the only thing that's changed. And like I'm on the other side with Sarah. This is just like I hate the smell of cigarette smoke, but like cannabis smoke smells kind of earthy and all right. And and I find it a way more pleasant thing to sniff while you're walking down the street. Yeah. Well, Sam, that is the right answer. And uh, now by a vote of two to one. Uh, we will now start smoking cannabis in the Real Talk studio. Uh, we're start. So- we're sorry. Yeah, start. <laughs> sorry, Hoyles. Uh, <laughs> but, but you know, it's been an interesting conversation here as well. I mean, this, you know, Shikari Richardson, American sprinter. Uh, interesting to see Nike stick with her. Uh, she tested positive for cannabis and um, was disqualified, is disqualified from competing in the uh, in the Tokyo Olympics in the 100 meter race where she was certainly one of the favorites. 
Um, she's she's uh, you know been issued a one month suspension. She's been with Nike since 2019. Um, you know, I I would even say, you know, and I tweeted about this on the weekend, and and I applauded Nike for sticking with her. Nike's been on the right side, I think, of a couple of things. Right? I mean, like you know, Colin Kaepernick's another interesting example. I saw that Ross Regliabati was chiming in on this, the the Canadian gold medal winning snowboarder. Who, oh, that got busted for got busted, but kept his gold medal. Mm-hmm. I remember he was talking about when I mean, you know, he's in a tough position. It's very different, right? Like. <laughs> This is like when when Ben Johnson got busted for anabolic steroids and what they're describing what they describe as the dirtiest race in human history. The 1988 men's Olympic 100 meter dash. Ben Johnson, Carl Lewis, like all the everyone's doping. Uh, Ben Johnson. Who's got the best drugs. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And who's the good. It's fascinating. I mean, we don't even have time to get down to that word, but that's fast. I remember I remember watching the race 11 Mm -hmm. years old. I remember where I was. Yeah, I was in the Jansen family's kitchen. With with my buddy Jeff and his mom Dina and their cat Mitzi, you don't believe me? I'll give you every detail. Did you call I, her Dina? Uh, Mrs. Jansen mostly, but yeah, but they would always say they'd say call us Dina and Rudy, and I'd always felt kind of strange too. I know I felt wrong. Yeah, because my parents were like Mister and Mrs. Always. I, I've thought of the Jansons. So I hope that they hear this. Um, I've thought of the Jansons twice, as a matter of fact, in this episode alone, and I haven't lived on the same street as them for thir- for thirty five years. Um, Rudy Jansen, this is a, a super niche mention, but for our listeners in Southern Alberta, was the guy, the legend that built the Road King truck stop. And I remember going to opening day, the day they cut the ribbon at the Road King, and it still stands there in Calgary along the Deerfoot Trail is this massive. There's something about a big, huge truck stop. It's super cool. As a kid, you go in there, it's just all these big rigs, and it's like, wow, feels like another planet. Uh, but I remember being in their kitchen. As we found out that Ben Johnson was being stripped of his gold medal and it was like as an 11 year old, you're like, what? And like, can it like a like a Canadian athlete was doping? What? And then when Ross Wrigley Batty gets busted, uh, busted, but, you know, he tests positive for cannabis. Yeah, I used that word busted. I was like, actually, that that does not actually fit. <laughs> and But keep in mind, it was not legal at the time. And, no. you know, this was this but long. He's a snowboarder. This is a long time. And, and he went, hey, stigma, Sarah. And but he. <laughs> But his thing was like, yeah, I was at a party, uh, at a send off party before I went to the Olympics and some people near me were smoking it. And it's like, oh, man, I felt but he had to go through the whole thing. Um, but as I tweeted, you know, I, I applaud Nike for sticking with this athlete. Um, and I tweeted and here's something that's different even now. I mean, you want to talk about how things have changed. I would say if I was still, you know, four years ago working at a mainstream terrestrial radio station, I'm not sure I'd be tweeting this that stigmas still stick to cannabis for now i'm not sure i got enough credit for the stick stigma stick i thought that was a fun little um i said as this where is are what, those applause this is what where i the do can't applause this is what I, let's see did the studio audience find that to be funny i mean i i sort of thought it was funny what do you guys think no oh, oh yeah a few i mean a few people yeah, yeah those of you in the back thanks um but i said as more and more people access this amazing plant for health healing and relaxation the stigma, I believe, will change and rules for sport and society must follow suit. Yeah, I need to catch up because really we all know. Well, maybe we don't all know, but marijuana cannabis does not is not performance enhancing. I mean, it depends on what you're talking about. If, if, okay, if you're writing if you're writing a screenplay, maybe maybe if you're writing a, an eight minute song, maybe maybe, but definitely not 
probably sprinting in the 100 meter dash. So we talked about this and, and uh, got into an interesting conversation with a couple of guys over the weekend. And, and I said, like cannabis, the only way that I can imagine it might be categorized or classified as performance enhancing for a sprinter might mean that it would potentially assist them in managing anxiety. And it's not for everybody, by the way. I mean, cannabis can can bring on mental health challenges for some people, and that's worth mentioning and important to mention. But for somebody that was experiencing perhaps muscle tension, lower back pain, anxiety, cannabis could help. And so you could categorize it potentially, if you had to, as a performance-enhancing drug. And a great counterpoint to that, it's not mine. And I'd credit the guy if I could remember his name. A guy I was chatting with over the weekend, a new friend, said, well, if that's performance enhancing, then so would be sports psychologists, mm. massage therapists, yeah. right? I mean, if it's that sort of Chiropractor. same, right? Chiropractors. Yeah. So always open to your thoughts to talk uh, at ryanjesperson.com. We'll talk Columbia in just a moment. Let me remind you, the studio that we come to you from each and every morning is powered by the team at Westworld Computers from the MacBook Pros to the iPads, the iPhones, the iMacs. Sam, am I missing anything? We got basically, it feels like everything that they offer here. It's because we checked in with Daryl when we were launching the show and said, here's what we're looking to do. What sort of horsepower do we need? And he said, well, we were doing it for 40 years as a family-owned business, so here's what we'd suggest. And we literally just went down the list. They've been doing that for businesses, for people's home offices, too. I mean, heck, you're looking for a tablet for the little guy? Westworld Computers is a great destination because they got the sales side and the service side as well. It's personal service. That's why they've been around for four decades. They'll ship anywhere in Canada. You can find them online at westworld.ca. Also want to remind you that the team at Friesen Brothers has been featuring BC Cherries right now because they're in season and undoubtedly they're the best in Canada. Everybody knows that. Friesen Brothers knows that. Proudly Albertan, but sometimes you gotta look west for things like fresh cherries. You'll find them at Friesen Brothers locations, 16 of them across the province of Alberta. And don't forget the Jespo recommendation, the sourdough cinnamon buns. I saw that Friesen Brothers, one of our audience members, uh, sent us a photo the other day. There were poppy seeds on the cinnamon buns. Poppy seeds on the center. Sort of a like a a, a little spin-off there, Mm -hmm. if that's your thing. It's always baked fresh at Friesen Brothers, has been that way for more than 65 years. Alberta grown and Alberta owned. All right, let's take a look south. Uh, We spoke to, as mentioned, uh, podcaster and journalist Richard McCall uh, about a month ago, well, three weeks ago on June 15th. If you want the context there, an interesting one. Uh, Richard talked to us uh, and gave some insight onto this nationwide protest, this movement calling for social reform. We we wanted to follow up on that here. And in just a second, we're going to get to Joshua Collins, uh, a journalist, a freelancer focused on Latin America and based out of Colombia. That's coming up in just a quick second. Um, But in the meantime, I'm just going to say the the funny thing is that we just had a tech. We just hit a wall technically. So uh, I was heading heading hot right into an interview. Um, and, uh, and it looks as though we've lost our connection. So, so, uh, you know, there we go. Uh, thumbs up. We're good to go now. Okay. Joshua Collins, a freelance journalist focused on, this is the real stuff that happens when you do a live real show, talk right? focused on Latin America based out of Columbia. You've probably, if you've been reading about Columbia and vice USA today, Al Jazeera, you've read it as well as at Miros invisibles.com. Joshua, welcome to real talk. And thanks for making time for us this morning. 
Yeah, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. This, you know, it's I think for for us, you know, whether we're watching the United States or Canada, we, we can be guilty of being unaware, really, of some of the things that are happening. Big developments, big movements, other places on the planet. And that would certainly include Colombia. The last couple of months for yourself as a journalist, how would you characterize it? Uh, incredibly busy. It, it was especially in the beginning. Um, it was very unexpected for the protests to spiral into as large as a, a large as a movement as they did. Um, and then, so I spent about a month on on the protests in the street almost daily uh, in Bogota here in the capital, as well as Cali, which has been sort of the epicenter of violence in the protests in Colombia. So since the protests began on March 28th, there have been 77 deaths. 74 of those have been protesters, and the vast majority of those, 45 at the hands of police. Especially during the first few weeks, um, the protests were extremely deadly from the perspective of state violence, uh, particularly in Cali. So yeah, that kept me extremely, extremely busy. But it's interesting. Um, Things have calmed down now, but they, the organizers of the strikes have plans for another nationwide movement to start on the 20th of this month. So it's hard to predict. Columbia is anything if predictable. It's almost everything else besides that. Uh, but we'll see if momentum picks up again. Has the I, I suspect I know the answer to this question, but, I, but I'd love your insights on it, on, on, on the, the impact of the, I mean, the violence. Um, in, in particular, I mean, you talk about fatalities, nearly 80 fatalities, 74 demonstrators dead. What sort of an impact has that had on, on the resolve of those that continue to demonstrate? Well, that was interesting. So um, I'm sure you guys are aware of some of the basics of the story. When the protests first started, they were about a number of issues. But one of the bigger ones was about a tax reform that the government was proposing. And I think that if the government had just allowed the protests to continue instead of cracking down on them with such violence, they probably would have fizzled out in a week or two. The tax bill was withdrawn, but because of the state violence, the protests transformed from what was originally uh, a movement with very specific goals into a much broader anti-government and anti-police movement. And that really resonated across the country. Now, what's interesting is that, like, I've been working as a freelancer down here for four years, and I've been to literally hundreds of protests in Colombia, but I've never seen anything like this. Even the 2019 strikes, which were the biggest demonstration Colombia had in 50 years, were, were nowhere near the, the size of these protests. They were in virtually every city of the nation, including cities that had traditionally been supporters of the government or unconcerned with civil movements in the past that have arisen perhaps only in the capital or perhaps only regional movements. But we saw, at one point, there were upwards of 90 cities in the streets. I think that was in the second week of the protests. Um, and, and that was directly because of the government's response. For some reason, the government really feared these protests in the beginning and tried to stamp them out violently. Um, I have a lot of theories about why that is. We can go into that or not as you like. No, I, I, of course. We're all ears. Why do you think that is? So Colombia is recently emerged from a 50-year civil war. In 2017, they implemented a peace process with a leftist rebel group, FARC. That's a, a Marxist guerrilla group that had been trying to overthrow the government since the 60s. Now, the police force here in, is, is not like a police force in most democracies. It's run by the Ministry of Defense. So the Defense Department 
is in charge of the police. And historically, um, that police presence has been very militarized. And when they have responded to crises before, they've always assumed, you know, these are, this is part of the civil war. These, what the government loves to say is that these are terrorists, right? Uh, multiple officials here have called the protesters terrorists, have called them vandals. And I think that that, that sort of perspective has become part of a culture of the police force here, right? It's like they consider any threat to the government as a grave one and they will respond accordingly. Do you do you perceive I mean, with regards to your assessment of the stability or the staying power of this government, I mean, I'm certainly asking you to to prognosticate here. But but where do you see this going and what sort of implications could it have on Colombia's government? That's a really good question. So right now um, there has effectively if I say effectively because there are a couple of small exceptions there's effectively been one party in control of Colombia uh, for 50 years and virtually every branch of the government as well. Now, lately, um, since about 20 years ago, that has been under the philosophy of former president Alberto Uribe. So they call it Uribistas, right? Um, that's the philosophy. And the current, the current administration of Ivan Duque is, represents that trend of thought. So as far as what effect the protests will have on um, Politics, we're coming into an election year next year. Elections will start this year in November. Right now, Ivan Duque has a disapproval rating of 79%. Wow. He's the least least popular president in Colombian history. And that's impressive because they've had some very unpopular governments. So um, as far as impacts of the nation, I would say that as long as Ivan Duque is in the administration, we will probably not get the police reform that protesters are, are demanding. But I do think that he has, I don't want to say this as a short thing, I imagine he has destroyed his party's chances for any kind of meaningful victory in the upcoming elections. Hmm. I imagine we'll see them um, lose the the executive branch, and I imagine that they'll lose a lot of seats in the Senate and the House as well because of these protests. um, So when the protests first started, they had an approval rating of almost 85%. So even people who weren't active participants in the protests greatly supported them. That has changed a little bit going three months in because there has been instances of uh, protest violence. There were blockades across almost a third of the country for a month that were extremely unpopular. They were blocking commerce. They were blocking transportation. There was even an instance where they blocked a hospital and a baby died. So I don't want to put all of the um, negative actions completely on the side of the state. There have been bad actors among the protest movement as well. And that has made the movement a little bit less popular. It's now, I think that the last poll was about two weeks ago and it had like a 58% approval rating, which is still really high, but not as incredible as it was in the beginning. Um, Also, the government has slowed down on killing protesters. There have only been three deaths in the last two weeks at the hands of police. But there have been deaths of protesters at the hands of other civilians, which in Colombia is a very, very scary thing. Because during the Civil War, Colombia had a history with paramilitarism. And what that was, was militias would organize and they would fight these rebels as well. In the beginning, they were called self-defense forces. But these paramilitary forces quickly evolved into criminal groups and death squads. And there's a very scary history of what they call social cleansing here, which is when these neighborhoods would go into towns and they would kill anyone they suspected of working with the guerrillas. Now, these killings by civilians, mostly in Cali, of protesters in Colombia call up 
memories of those horrific events, these human, massive human rights violations during the Civil War. And obviously we're nowhere near that level, but if the trend towards paramilitarism continues, that could be a great problem for Colombia moving forward. Journalist Joshua Collins, our guest, uh, I guess it was about it was about a week ago that uh, th- that statue of Christopher Columbus was toppled. Do, do you pronounce the city? Is it Barranquilla? Is that how you say it? Barranquilla. Yep. Barranquilla. Uh, how significant, like, like symbolically, uh, you know, we see these statues come down, uh, you know, Robert E. Lee in the southern U.S. or, or you know, Sir John A. Macdonald or Winston Churchill or Queen Victoria up here in Canada. Uh, how significant symbolically is the toppling of a Christopher Columbus statue in Colombia? It's a, it's a very, very controversial issue here. Um, so let me give a bit of background about how this started. So uh, and when the protest first started, there was this indigenous group, uh, mostly from Cauca, called the Misak. And the Misak people, I've started to call them the Mata statue. It's like the statue killers, right? So... Since protests started, they've been traveling around Colombia, um, toppling various statues of various conquistadors. Now, some of them are more controversial than others. Um, much like when this happened in the States last year, some people will say, oh, well, they need to go through um, the governments and, and apply for permits to remove these statues. But I've talked with these, with these indigenous people that are committing these actions. And what they tell me is that we've never had a voice in our governments. If we, if we send in the paperwork for a position to remove the statue of one of these conquistadors who literally killed hundreds of thousands of our people, it, the, the government will ignore us. So to them, it was a way to call attention to what they call the revisionism of Spanish colonialism in Colombia. What they feel is that the story has been whitewashed over centuries, 500 years now, because it was written by the victors. And so, these attempts to knock over statues to them are a strategy for calling um, attention to how badly conquistadors and the Spanish crown and you know people like Columbus, Columbus actually never came to Colombia, although it's weird that we have his name, um, but to, to call attention to the revision of that history. Now, people on the other side say, this is just theatrical, this is, this is performative, this has no purpose, uh, it's, it's anarchy, it's chaos. So it's extremely controversial. And I think that the most controversial were the, the, the statue of Columbus about a week ago, as well as Queen Isabella in Bogota about a week before that. Um, there's a lot of people here in Colombia that are proud of what the Spanish culture instilled on this nation. And there are people who, who would argue, much like people argued in the States last year, that even though these were people who committed horrible crimes, they're still part of the culture of Colombia. But it's, I don't know where, where that's going to go. I do think, though, that it's very interesting and important that perhaps Colombia has a conversation in an attempt to reconcile these different viewpoints. And perhaps, I don't, I think it's fair to say that for a long time, the story of Spanish colonialism was misrepresented in Latin American education. And perhaps it's time to revisit that at the least. I don't have a strong opinion on whether the statue destruction is lawful or good, but I do think that it has inspired an interesting conversation. I agree with you. I, I, I feel like I want to keep you here for half an hour just to pick your brain. It's like just two guys having a chat because I'm, I'm curious to know if you think the statues will go back up. I mean, if statues come down, 
I'm trying. I mean, keep in mind right now, Joshua. So what's going on up here in our neck of the woods? I mean, people are burning churches down. Like Catholic churches are, I saw that. are being burned to the ground. Right. And but then there was also an attempted arson. I believe it was on the Sutina First Nation outside Calgary, Siksika First Nation. One of them outside Calgary, Treaty Seven. Um, over the over the course of the weekend, and and people are taking down statues, and people are ripping name plates off buildings, and it's. Boy, oh boy. I feel like as a public commentator, I can't not take a position or I do all these right, sort of right. bu- bullshit platitudes like it'll be interesting to see what happens. I mean, that's what mm-hmm. someone says when they have nothing to say. But I, you can't condone arson. I understand why people are angry. I understand triggering impacts on people. The imagery of statues coming down or being, you know, people say vandalized. Uh, let me say there's graffiti art on them. It's pretty powerful messaging. I mean, it's it's just I'm sitting here as an observer going, where is this all going to go? I mean, you can't just yeah. burn everything to the ground. Colombian protesters would disagree. <laughs> sure. Yeah. And probably probably well, probably many up here, too. There's there's something that's interesting. Um, So a a lot of to North American, both both Canadian and people from the U.S., when they look at a lot of Latin American protests, not just Colombia, they seem kind of extreme. Right. So but there's there's a a cultural difference between protest movements in South America and North America. Um, Obviously, there are exceptions like you've just mentioned some rather extreme examples, but Generally speaking, the protests in South America are a lot more aggressive. Like, so, for example, the first time I ever went to a protest here four years ago was a student march in Bogota, and it was over a, a tuition increase. It wasn't really supposed to be a big deal. And the police showed up and they shot tear gas, and I thought, okay, well, that's the end of the protests. But the protesters built a barricade in the street, started throwing rocks back at the police, uh, eventually stormed the nearby uh, mini sub precinct. And I was like, okay, well, this is. This is a small, low-level protest in Colombia, right? There's just this history of extreme, I don't want to say extremism, political activism and very aggressive tactics, that, uh, a culture of that that doesn't exist in the States. And I think that that goes beyond Colombia into all of Latin America. But tying back into your point in Canada, it seems like there are exceptions to the differences in these trends and people seem really upset about what's going on there. And I do think that it's interesting and perhaps important that there has been a reckoning of our perhaps flawed history of how colonizers dealt with indigenous people across the entire continent. And it's important, I think, at least in Colombia, I think that the, the country is stable enough for the first time in over half a century that perhaps these conversations can be had. Yeah. Um, in the past, when indigenous tried protests like this during the Civil War, they were simply crushed with force. Fascinating stuff. Uh, people can check out. Um, what's what's the translation? I should know this. Of, of uh, is it? Do you say muros? How do you? How, muros, how do you in, muros invisibles. It's invisible walls. Um, the project originally, when I when I lived on the Venezuelan Colombian border, had to do with the fact that we create these invisible walls between us. Um, yes, they're borders that we can't cross, but there are more than that. There are also perceptions. There's languages. There are a lot of invisible barriers between all of us. And I think the hope for my journalism is to try and break through some of those walls. Amazing stuff. Uh, people can check it out online. We've linked to your work uh, in the tweet that we sent out every morning announcing our guest lineup. Uh, Joshua, we're grateful that you've made time for us this morning. Um, thanks for this. Keep up the amazing work and uh, we'll look forward to speaking with you again. It was really a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. Absolutely. Have a good day.
Yeah, our pleasure, too. Right. That was uh, it's, it's journalist Joshua Collins uh, based out of Columbia. And you can check his work at Muros. I, I, my, my pronunciation is so bad. I want to be like morosinvisibles.com, but that's not, I want to say it right. You know, we always have a chuckle about my buddy's dad. He, he, he'd always speak, you know, they, they'd go to this beautiful Cancun, Mexico. They'd go to this place and there's this place. It would be Plaza Caracol. Yeah. Whereas like there's like restaurants and things like that. And his dad would be like, all right, everybody, let's go. Everybody, come on. It's time for supper. Get in the cabin. He'd be like, hey, amigo, what's shaking? Plaza Caracol, please. <laughs> but he would just, hey, a Plaza Caracol. And it was like, hey, man, at least you nailed those two, right? That's great. Try. Try. Yeah. I, I, I always get nervous. I always get nervous. What, that people are going to think you're trying to, like, show off or no, sound no, no. like you? No, no, not show off. Definitely the other end of the spectrum. The other way one. around. Yeah. The other way around. What did you just stuff. say? Yeah. You was... just butchered that. Yeah. Interesting insight, isn't it? I mean, you talk about, isn't it, like, whether it's Columbia or, I don't know, Tennessee or Alberta or British Columbia or Manitoba, wherever, the, the statues coming down is a thing and there are there are nuanced discussions to be had about each one and the significance and the mm. context but bigger picture you know i, I like, where does this go like what is we are in the midst of a it, it's gonna really you know like it, it's not been i mean these conversations are not necessarily new people saying you know these these people like this person doesn't deserve a statue or actually that neighborhood is named after a person with a a pretty sketchy track record or or whatever the case may be uh, you know the way that we've named our buildings or the the people that we've honored with with naming our freeways or our hospitals or whatever um, you know it's not like it's a new conversation that people are taking issue with it but now people are taking more than issue they're taking action like yeah, I'm, you know, I'm sick I'm sick the- of seeing the statue so I'm going to start a petition to have it taken down no right I, I, I'm going to grab a couple ratchet straps or maybe the winch on my truck and pull it down. And more and more people are brazenly doing this. And I can't say I understand why, because I've not walked miles in those shoes, but I, I get it. But at what point does right? I mean, like the, the church arson thing. Like these are right. these are historic churches. The city of you know the community of Beaumont, for example, a uh, Morinville. Pardon me. I was like um, Beaumont now. Okay, no, Morinville. My, my bad. I was just trying to think of like fantastic little bedroom communities near Edmonton, mm-hmm. and I and I thought of the beautiful community of Beaumont. But more French communities, Morinville. Yeah, both French communities. Um, but but the Morinville church, I know for 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 many people was like I saw that former Morinville mayor. She's the former president of the Alberta Urban Municipality Association, Lisa Holmes, just a force of nature in her own right. Love Lisa. She 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 was devastated um, and speaking on behalf of her. Well, she's speaking for herself, but, you know, reflecting the, the, the what that church represented to the people in that community. You know, people had been baptized there, you know, raised in that church, been married in that church, had been eulogized in that church. And now it's been burned to the ground. And then other people say, well, yeah, you're right. The, the symbolism of that church is very significant. And that's why somebody probably burned it down. I mean, it's, you know, <sighs> I think there's a, there's a big difference between a church and a statue. Hundred percent. Um, and so, and I also don't like. Is it wasn't out of the blue for a statue like the one on the grounds of the Manitoba? Yeah, Queen uh, Victoria. The Queen Victoria statue. 
this was not out of the blue. This was not just, you know, from zero to a thousand. This was years, if not, you know, a century's worth of people saying this is not right. Yeah. We do not agree. And there's only there's only so much a person can take until they were like, you're not listening to us. I mean, but I can't again, I can't condone it, but I I just I don't think that it's out of the blue as far as the churches. I'm man. Oh, man. Oh, man. You can't just go around burning down buildings. So I'm not getting like and I'm I'm trying to find a very uh, this is a weird way to put it, but I'm trying to find the sweet spot on commentary Mm. to say I understand like I as best I can I understand as best I can and I am seeking to understand more about the the depth of the trauma and the anger and the unresolved nature of 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 Canada's relationship with indigenous people here and all of these types of contributing factors we also don't know, like, let me, whether it's implied or otherwise, let's also say this isn't like, you can't just say, oh, and indigenous people are burning down churches. Nobody knows that. Well, this, is, can this can't turn into that sort of a thing either. Be, I, I, precisely. Th- these could be firebugs. These could be arsonists. These could be, These you know, could be people that are harnessing the current political climate yeah. to, um, to shift. Yeah. It could be right wing shit disturbers. It yes. could it, it, it could be it, it could be, you know, woke left wing liberals, white liberals burning down churches on behalf of. I mean, it could be anything. And I'm not trying to create all these red herrings and, and take the focus away from the conversation. But in trying to find a spot, I think you have to say you can't just I mean, it's 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 obvious. It's it's I mean, like Lauren Corbett, who's a great, you know, uh, contributor to conversation on this show. He's a retired fire chief. The other days, and I know Lauren personally, I know Lauren to be a thoughtful, contemplative guy, an open minded guy, an empathetic guy. Um, but he was he said even just I mean, the fact that there was a seniors home next door, there's places of business. Firefighters could be injured like you can't you can't just condone burning down churches. We have indigenous leaders in Canada. They're stepping up. I know we have asks in to speak with a couple of them on the show that are pleading with people. These are community members saying you can't keep burning down churches. Well, it also makes like it puts a. Uh, an even bigger target on indigenous community members when that happens when what? and i mean we haven't mentioned it but the call by the or the the mention the the speech by the premier uh talking about when the church was burnt down in Morinville. yeah you know putting putting his foot down but never mentioning anything about the you know the attacks on Women in hijabs, uh, attacks on yeah. on mosques and other houses of worship. Well, consider the source. Well, no, but this is what I'm saying. Like, it's we can't pick and choose. Yeah, it's it's Next. all wrong. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's all wrong. We'll continue to talk about it. We appreciate having an audience here uh, that's with us for these conversations. The, the ones that aren't necessarily always just black and white, right? I'm checking out McBainCamera.com right now. I was, was, was going to talk about whether you're a photojournalist or, or, or just a, a casual, you know, you're your own family's photographer right now at McBainCamera.com. They've got this great trade-in event. So I signed in. I check out McBainCamera.com and look what pops up. Customer support. Look at that right there. Hello. Can I help you with anything? Um, not right now. Just browsing. 
Real Talkers say hi. Uh, just a little message from us to, to whoever there. Look at that. And they're going to get back to us right away. They have no idea that they're live right now on Real Talk. This is your chance to turn your old photography equipment into new possibilities with McBain. A 25% bonus in trade-in value for your secondhand gear through the month of July. This is a great opportunity. That lens, that camera body that's gathering dust, you haven't used it for a while. They're going to take everything in from the vintage gear all the way to the latest full-frame mirrorless cameras. You can bring in your used cameras, lenses down to any McBain location across the province to have it appraised. They need a few days to assess it, to test it out, and then you can make a deal. The offer ends July 31st, and again, you can visit McBainCamera.com to find the, cl- the store that's closest to you. Let's get into this story out of Mexico. This is a fascinating one, and I'm really excited. I'm just excited to meet Natalia, by the way. This is the, the journalist that agreed to join us who has maybe one of the coolest job descriptions I've, I've ever heard of. So so here's the deal. Uh, Mexico, basically, in, in on, on June 28th, so we'll call it a, you know, a week ago or so, in a 9-2 vote, the Mexican Supreme Court declared the prohibition of personal consumption, possession, and cultivation of recreational cannabis as unconstitutional. Now, the work is not done here. If you're on your way to Mexico for a vacation, do not pick up an ounce on the beach and smoke it openly in front of the federales. It could be a problem. It's why we wanted to go to to cannabis and psychedelics reporter Natalia uh, Buendia. Uh, Did I do okay on the surname, Natalia? Welcome to Real Talk. We're so grateful to have you here. You did great, Ryan. Thank you so much for inviting me. Well, yeah, that was great pronunciation, I must say. <laughs> well, you have. I, I, I want to pick your brain not just about this story, but about your job. You're a cannabis and psychedelics reporter for Mugglehead Mag. How, how did you find your way here? I mean, this is what an interesting beat. Well, you know, it all started with my interest in kind of like educating people on drugs and just my passion in science. And then uh, honestly, this job just came to me uh, with a colleague from Langara College and uh, I just had to take it. You know, it kind of merged my knowledge in science and my interest in drugs. And um, this interest also came by growing up in Mexico and just kind of like always seeing how like drugs were poorly kind of like seen and very stigmatized. So I was always like, hey, maybe it's not that bad. You know, maybe you just need to learn a little bit more about this. And I guess my passion for research and educating people took me to this job. And uh, yeah, I can say it's a very neat niche right now, especially with all the emerging industries popping up. Well, no kidding. I mean, you I mean, even around the world, I mean, you and I could talk about medical cannabis we could talk about recreational cannabis we could talk about some of some of the new technologies there i mean on the psychedelic front microdosing mental health implications some of the the big business that's booming there it's estimated to be an absolutely massive industry i mean you could write for days and days and days there's so much subject matter especially through an international lens yeah, I know you got that right. Like, honestly, right now it's just erupting. Like, you have, like, psilocybin, you have cannabis, you have legalization. You even have the company side of it, right? Because all the companies right now are kind of, like, just seeing the potential all of these industries have. Therefore, they're preparing to when it's ready to go, you know? 
So definitely there's still a lot of uh, writing to do and this is just starting and I'm really happy to be in this uh, in this field. So Natalia, you grew up in Mexico. So you I mean, you've obviously had a, had a good sense of I mean, you, you, you've shared with us your personal perceptions of what you've observed with regards to the culture around cannabis, the stigma uh, that is there. Can, can you sort of set the tone for us on how significant this development is this nine to two vote. This is a pretty clear statement from the Supreme Court. Yeah, definitely. Like Mexico has this idea that cannabis is going to destroy society, right? From creating more crime to just making people do more drugs to just destroy it. Right. So but they don't really know why. So this is a huge step into kind of removing that stigma. So it's kind of like, okay, so the court now has actually declared it a human right. So it shouldn't be as bad, you know? So this is kind of like, not a huge step, but the first step into mobilizing to uh, the stigmatized view of weed, I would say. And uh, what happened last week, I'd say it left people kind of like confused because there isn't any regulation. It's just pretty much like, uh, okay, now it's a human right, but nobody really knows how this is seen. So, for example, cannabis users may go out on the street and they may light up a joint, but they don't really know if like they're going to get prosecuted still or not because it's not outlined anywhere. So. I'd say like it's a of course it's a working process, uh, but I would say it's a huge step to kind of like get the conversation going, which in my opinion is the first step of changing people's minds and educating them about drugs. Yeah, Natalia, what prompted all of this? Was it was it a was a, a promise from a uh, you know from a politician? Was it a was it a grassroots no pun intended grassroots movement? What was it? <laughs> Well, you know what, this this comes back in 2017, like with uh, an act of unconstitutionality being declared by a minister. Mm. So she proposed it based on how people were applying for amparos. That is kind of like a special permit that is like, okay, this law is violating on my human rights. Then you kind of like have to apply to this permit and then you're able to do something. So what happened is that five people got this permission based on cannabis use as a human right. And uh, this kind of prompted the general act of unconstitutionality to be admitted. And uh, after these uh, lawmakers were kind of forced to create a law in order to meet those human rights for Mexicans. But like this happened like back in 2017 and then they asked for extensions for three extensions actually and then COVID. So all of these kind of like delays happened and uh, the law never came to be. So on April 30, it was kind of like the deadline uh, by the Supreme Court on the lawmakers kind of telling them, hey, you should make a law because this is violating human rights. So that never happened. Lots of discussions. The law got to a point where it was about three steps away from becoming an actual law. But again, there was always like, oh, the lower house changed some law so that we have to revise it. So it was like this back and forth for like, I don't know, two months. And then finally, the deadline happened, the deadline happened, and then all these protests and like people were, you know, wanting answers. And and finally, they discussed it, which ended up in removing the prohibition of weed. Were the protests 
pro-cannabis or anti-cannabis? Oh, that's a great question, actually. Uh, pro-cannabis, okay. actually. Yeah, yeah. like you have uh, the biggest protesters there, I would say, are the Planton 420, which is like a, it's like a group that has been smoking outside the Senate and kind of demanding for the fair rights, like freedom of smoking, freedom of growing, and pretty much like helping common citizens, not really like uh, the industries or big companies. A big critique from them, it was like the proposed law didn't really help removing the stigma as you still kind of needed a permission to smoke weed. So they were like, hey, if it's if we're responsible adults, why are you kind of asking us to get a permit? Right. So a lot of these activists, like they just want to be able to, you know, smoke freely. But then they encounter all these like, oh, you know, stigma kind of motivated permits that, uh, yeah, that kind of like just turn them off into the current uh, government movements. Mm. Yeah, I, I want to like, provide some context here for our audience to, uh, to let them know. I mean, you obviously originally from Mexico City, but you came to Canada uh, in 2007, right, to study science. You graduated mm-hmm. from University of Victoria uh, with a bachelor's degree in biology, psychology, um, your area of focus, neurobiology and mental health. Um, you also have a hold a certificate as an, an intermediate emergency medical technician. How neat is that for uh, Camosun College <laughs> Victoria, also a graduate there. These are going to be some familiar stomping grounds for a lot of people that tune in from the West Coast. The reason why I wanted to to to, uh, to establish that is because I know that you're aware of what what you know what things were like in Canada, the lead up in Canada to legalize cannabis in October uh, of 2018, and I'm curious to know if you see any parallels with what's going on in Mexico right now. I mean, in Mexico right now, is it like, hey, listen, I should have the right to cultivate a few plants on my property and to smoke openly and freely? Or is this forecasting a a green rush, so to speak, where a lot of people, including former lawmakers, I mean, this was a lot of the controversy in Canada. um, What I know turned off a lot of the old school pot smokers. They didn't like the fact, and I don't blame them, that the, the industry started to reward Many people who had cracked down on cannabis for many years, former high profile police chiefs, uh, former lawmakers, government ministers are now sitting on the boards or as investors in private cannabis companies. And and essentially, I mean, the business side of cannabis was a huge part and is a huge part of the conversation around legalization. Is it the same in Mexico? Comparing them is kind of tricky because the way Canada reached to legalization was by proposing a bill, by doing it in order, let's say. And I I would say that the stigma here is way less than in Mexico. And as for companies, I would say that it's kind of like the same thing. Like usually the law will benefit companies over people. But again, like there's no draft of the bill right now being, you know, solidified. So it's kind of hard to draw parallels with the Canadian legalization process, but certainly like the bill that is drafted right now, it uh, it kind of like encourage other people to come to Mexico and kind of do business rather than, you know, um, focus on small growers. So there's always that critique that is like a, a money maker and not really like uh you know, like a favor they're doing to the citizens in terms of having the right to smoke. Is there a is there a I mean, when we when we talk about sort of the the spiritual traditions around what mm-hmm. what many of the substances that are now classified or categorized as drugs, um, is there any angle 
uh, when it comes to Mexican culture or spiritual tradition that, that would invoke the use of cannabis? I would say so. I mean, you can always claim you're Rastafarian, right? Or like bring other cultures from other places. But Mexico, I wouldn't say it has no. like a cannabis. No, I would say it's more in psilocybin mushrooms and other uh, psychedelic plants or like peyote. But cannabis, I'd say no, it's more. Yeah, not, not as far as I know, at least. But like, yeah, yeah I, I was, think it's more focused on psychedelics. Yeah, I was curious. I mean, it was actually sort of the, the peyote tradition that that prompted me to ask the question i was i was just curious and i mean obviously you cover both right you're you know you're a journalist that writes about cannabis and psychedelics do you think that this the supreme court ruling and and if we can anticipate uh legislation to follow do you think that opens the door for bigger conversations i mean there's been sort of experiments that we've been able to observe in portugal and other jurisdictions where there's talk i mean there's a a canadian mp nathaniel erskine smith who wants i mean a liberal mp who wants to drive conversation on decriminalizing or legalizing all substances all drugs and and you talk to some advocates and they can make a strong argument for it obviously people can make arguments against it as well where do you see mexico going I mean, I certainly hope so that they end up uh, kind of pulling the other drugs to the cannabis side. But uh, as far as I see it now, there's still a strong stigma against the other substances because they're very seen as like in order to get these substances like LSD or, yeah, like, you know, all those chemical psychedelics, then you would need to access kind of like the black market. But then when it comes to kind of like natural remedies, they they may hide or like kind of like merge with the religious kind of behaviors that exist in Mexico. For example, if you go to a place in Oaxaca called uh, San Jose del Pacifico, you can find mushrooms everywhere and like, of course, everyone knows that it happens there, but there's no prosecution, right? So it's it's also mixed with the kind of like the right to, uh, yeah, have spiritual rituals using these substances. So as far as I see it right now, I think those substances are being ignored, but I don't see them come in. I feel like there still needs to be a huge education kind of, uh, effort when it comes to cannabis and even more to psychedelics. But I, I'd say people are kind of curious for like mushrooms and like because you you hear like, oh, well, they help with depression. So maybe that would kind of boost the interest in Mexico for legalizing these substances. Yeah. I, I find that, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm going to state something obvious here, but this is I mean, it, it, it directly relates to the work that you do, the more educated that people are. I think the more informed decisions they can make with, with regards to how they feel about legislation, but also maybe their personal convictions. But that education requires a desire or at least an, an, an open mindedness to a certain degree. Right. And and those are the types of conversations, I think, that start to happen around dinner tables and on the sidelines at soccer games. And I think that those are conversations that happen at a personal level as opposed to something that's imposed right from a federal government. Yeah, I feel like drugs uh, create a lot of fear when people don't know about it. So yeah. they think that by even being around them, you may get affected by them, either by the behavior of a person or by being around smoke or by being around high people. Like, But I think, like you said, uh, by educating people and just showing them, hey, here is, you know, scientists, because people feel safe when you show them science, right? It's like, here, this is proven to be okay. This is actually helping people. So that kind of like plants the seed to when they're 
thinking about it in their own free time, like, oh, maybe this is actually good for me because I'm suffering with this. So I feel like you said, like starting the conversation and trying to push people that are very stigmatized and creating a friendly conversation with them by creating proper arguments, not just opinions. I think it's a, a great step. And like, I honestly, I've always talked to my mom and everyone I know about drugs just because of that, because you have these like immediate impact of reject, like oh, drugs, like how can you even bring it up? But then they want to know more, you know, mm -hmm. they're like, oh yeah, I heard someone uh, had cannabis in a jar and they were like rubbing it and it helped, you know? So there's drugs have been with us forever. And I feel like it's just about re-educating the way we see them. And this would even help us, you know, it would help us be freer, remove stigma, come up with new medicines and, uh, and you know, even recreational substances that make us, you know, enjoy life. And yeah, like there's, there's nothing, nothing wrong. <laughs> I, I'm so glad you made that point, too. It's it's kind of funny, like, you know, people always uh, not always, but pe people in talking about cannabis will say, well, there are there are, um, you know, real benefits here, like for cancer patients that have lost their appetite as a result of chemo, it can stimulate an, an appetite or um, um, in some cases, even suppress appetite or it can help it. People don't often just say, it just makes me feel great. I just actually really enjoy it. <laughs> right? Like in the same, like you don't, you don't have to justify why you crushed like eight lime margaritas on the patio at, at the taco stand, but you have to, you know, I mean, it, it, it's, it's, it's so interesting. And, and you'll talk about like somebody's experimenting or microdosing with psilocybin or mushrooms or psychedelics. And everyone, will go, you know, kind of like, Ooh, and they picture all these like twirly outlandish, ridiculous, you know, I'm sort of picturing, you know, Johnny Depp as Hunter S Thompson, uh, you know, that sort of a thing. Whereas at the same time, if your physician prescribes you basically horse tranquilizers, uh, you know, you'll go fill the prescription at the pharmacy, you know, stuff your face with them. Nobody will judge you for it. This, and it just to me, it's like what a bunch of a bunch of people in a boardroom have decided which uh, substances are acceptable and which are not. And there's so much that goes into that. I don't even think you and I have enough time to talk about uh, some of the contributing factors to what's been outlawed and what has not and who's profited from what. But it's very interesting because I don't think we have enough of those open conversations of stacking things up side by side and saying, let's have real talk about this. Yeah, I think there there has to be talk about the freedom of altering your your consciousness. Like, why is that wrong? Why why do people penalize it so much? You're not harming anyone, but like they see it as a kind of like a an insult to society. It's like, oh, why are you acting like that? Why do you look weird? It's like against the norm. So by accepting these people and like, you know, they just like getting high. We all like getting high from coffee, from sugar, from alcohol, from TV, from the phone. So we just have to understand that like drugs come in different shapes and like some of them are more toxic, some of them are more creative, but they're just the same thing, right? So. Yeah, I fully, I fully believe in decriminalization of all drugs. Hmm. Natalia, in closing, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty certain that uh, the Hell's Angels have not been put out of business in Canada, despite the fact that cannabis is 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 now being legally grown, supervised by Health Canada, regulated uh, by governing bodies in different provinces and territories, and sold with tax applied. I'm pretty sure that a lot of people are still 
texting their guy, the same guy that's been bringing them ounces for 100 bucks for 20 years, and they're still getting great pot. And I think that there's, you know, a retail market that's doing reasonably well. And I would suggest that the black market is still uh, very alive and well in Canada. What are the implications, if any, do you think on, on Mexican cartels and, and, and what you might describe as, as the black or gray market there? If anything, it would kind of remove income from there, from them. And I mean, by now, their income from marijuana is not huge, to be honest. Like they make most of their money from fentanyl, cocaine and like things that I don't even know and don't even want to think about right now. Uh, so I feel like marijuana, the fact that it's getting normalized it's uh, prompting people to maybe grow their own weed or maybe like you said, go to their guy that not necessarily is a, a drug dealer, but just like a guy that has a great green thumb and has great weed. Because I mean, what the government is planning right now is like, oh yeah, we'll just give you the seed and then you'll grow your weed and be happy. But I mean, we all know that growing weed is not that easy, especially if you want to consume it. So I feel like there's two cases. Uh, Either people are gonna feel more comfortable going to the black market now, like, oh, now I can smoke weed everywhere. So I'll call my guy and like do it more often, right? So that's a, that's a kind of scenario. But you also have the scenario of like, oh, I, I have weed here. I don't need to contact my dealer anymore. Or like my friend Johnny here uh, grows great weed, you know? So you kind of remove money from the black market like that. Uh, I'm curious to see if there's some sort of, I don't know, effect on how people gather weed from the black market. But yeah, yeah. I would say uh, those would be kind of like the three scenarios I would predict. Yeah, I think you're probably right. I, it, it's been interesting for me to and I and I kind of smirk a little bit um, because I can't even keep like I can't even keep basic houseplants alive. I can't like I'm the guy that will kill a cactus inadvertently. Um, uh, so, I mean, people that were like, you know, oh, and, you know, when Canada legalizes it and everyone can grow four plants and I'm just going to grow plants, why would I pay for it? It's like, you ever try? Uh, I mean, sure, sure. It's like, yeah. you know, some people have home brews and brew their own beer and some people make their own wine in their basements. Um, but but I think if you stack it up against, you know, the best in the business, it probably wouldn't compare. Uh, it, interesting to see. I see more power to people. Yeah, definitely. Thank you so much for hanging out with us. I've really enjoyed this conversation. You've got such a, a, a neat thing going with Mugglehead Magazine. People can check it out at Mugglehead.com. Uh, it's been our pleasure to connect with Natalia Buendia, who's a, a drug policy journalist, and, and you can read her work there. Give her a follow on social media. And I'll look forward to having you back on the show. Thank you so much, Ryan. This has been great. Yeah, have a great, have a great day. day. Yeah, you yeah. as well, Natalia. Thanks, Thanks so much. Bye. Fascinating stuff. Um, great conversation about stigma. I love it. You know, you kind of bounce around in a conversation. I, I feel like we were just hanging out with her um, because the conversation is kind of bouncing back and forth mm. between like stigma and law enforcement and the business of cannabis. And, um, you know, I, I've, I've, I, you know, some parallels certainly between Canada's story. I didn't ask her about the U.S. That was a bit of a bonehead move on my part. But where to go, just screwed up the whole interview. Where to go? But yeah, I, I mean, if any American president, you know, I mean, I'd be curious to see if 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 that's something that would ever happen. People were, you know, as, as we try to weave together all these different conversations were happening. Some uh, some of our real talkers are making good points on the live chat, saying with regards to you know, prohibited substances mm. under, under the IOC and Olympic athletes, including this prominent American sprinter, um, you know, to the laws, the laws, the law. And she knew the rules and she broke the rules so she can abide by the rules. Sure. 
Um, but there's a bigger conversation, I think, to be had about whether or not it makes sense for the IOC to pro- to continue to prohibit cannabis. Mm-hmm. Now, people were making good points about saying, well, in some jurisdictions, it's outlawed. And the IOC is simply reflecting that. I mean, unless you know cannabis is legalized around the world, then whatever. Seems to be kind of a strange argument. Um, I mean, it's a personal choice matter. Uh, people can be prescribed medical cannabis if you have a prescription. Yeah. I mean, I know that athletes... You know, who, who is the who is the athlete that's I, I guess I could use the Google machine, but there was an athlete that had tested positive for steroids a while back. And she said she said it was because she had like a, a pork burrito or something like that. Do you see this? <laughs> yes. She said she had a pork burrito. And I, I, I asked a couple athletes what they thought about that. And they went, eh. they're like any competitive athlete knows everything that's going into their body. Yes. Right. I mean, they have it, a nutritionist. They have like their coach. They have. But even if it's supplements, something like, they like, yeah, uh, they have the sniffles. Yeah. And they're They're the ones that are going to be reading the box on the over the counter. You know, I picked it up at 7-Eleven. Absolutely. Like you got to make sure that what you're having. And I bet you that, you know, the, so I, you find it hard to believe. I mean, some of these stories are just like really steroids from a pork burrito. I have crushed so many pork burritos and I have never my pecs have never danced. My lats have never grown as a result. It's a, a runner is yeah. who it is. Uh, she uh, Shelby is her name, Holohan, and she's the American record holder in the 1500 and 5000 meter. Oh, those are painful, painful races. Um, 1500 I mean, is like 1500 meters. I competed in the 1500 meters uh, about 50 pounds ago. And it's one of those races where you're you're basic. You're like a sprint. You have the cardiovascular capability of a distance runner, but the speed and agility of a sprinter. Yeah. Fifteen hundred is a wild race. The eight, the eight hundred, the fifteen hundred, and the three thousand. Those Ugh. are actually those are some of my favorite races. I think those are great. Well, it's such strategy in them, right? Yeah. Because you have to. It's well, it's like uh, <laughs> this is probably a weird connection, but it's like uh, auto racing because you have to figure out like how much uh, air am I putting in the tires? Yeah. How much gas am I starting with or not? Yeah. And it's it's there's a lot of strategy in there. I've been watching F1 Drive to Survive. Have you guys been paying attention to this on Netflix? Super cool. I'm not I'm not I've never been like a huge Formula One guy. I've got mm. a lot of respect for it. I think the drivers are on another planet with regards to like risk taking and you know cool under pressure and all that kind of stuff um like i I don't think the average human can process what it would be like to be strapped into a machine like that and then going literally 350 kilometers an hour around corners like i just and you have to have like a headrest so your your head doesn't get like snapped back but then they're also like (laughs) they get in these spectacular wrecks and they flip seven times and then they get out and walk away and kind of like it just blows my mind but but yeah it's been it's been fascinating some insight there but but, so uh, pork burrito but pork burritos back to pork burritos <laughs> i don't even know how we're going to bring this one back together I, i'm curious to know real talkers how you feel about this I'm, I'm i'm hoping that we get some emails on 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 drug prohibition and policy and stigmas and stereotypes and and i mean i mean like like real life stuff you know how is it impacting you like i want to hear the story of the first time that somebody came out of the closet with cannabis i want to hear about the first time that somebody pulled out a joint or pulled out their vape pen at a family gathering and it sent shockwaves. 
Can you believe he just did that? I can't Through believe he just did is that. He, is he, is he smoking cannabis? Doing? But, can then the, but, then the, but then the younger brother is going to be talking to the mom and is going to say, yeah, but mom, it's legal now. Like you, Mom, like no offense, you're but your like, you're having your fifth glass of wine. Yeah. Like what? it's legal now. Why not? Well, yeah, but it's pot. It's weed. What is he? He's a lazy stoner now. He's going to sit in my basement and play video games all day? No, Ma. He's like, he just sold his company for $35 million. He's like, you know, judges smoke weed. Cops, some of them, smoke, smoke weed. weed. Right? It's like people smoke weed. You know, neurosurgeons smoke weed. Maybe not right before neurosurgery, but still. Do I dare transition into an ad read right now? Yeah, Lo- you do. Local waste won't mind. Not at all. There's got to be some sort of a thing of like pot, weed, trash talk. Nah, let's not try too hard. Nah, don't. Trash talk is coming up on Friday. Sure is. Sure is. And and right now we are taking your submissions. You got something you got to get off your chest? Send it to us in an email to talk at ryanjesperson.com. Local Waste has proudly presented Trash Talk because, well, I mean, quite frankly, they've been talking trash for a quarter century. Locally owned and operating integrity to them is their most important corporate value. They've got it up on the wall. Now, what does that actually mean for you as a customer? It means they're not going to try to sell you more service than you need. They're in the long-term relationship game with us and with you. As Mikkel, the CEO, says there, air is free, but expensive to dump. They'll start you on the small bins, and you're going, yeah, I know, but I'm locked into this contract with the other guys, the big multinational guys. You know those bins everybody recognizes. I'm locked in, and I can't get out. Local Waste actually uses their resources to leverage you out of your bad contract. You can learn more by giving a call or visiting them online at localwaste.ca. Chris, Lauren, and Mikkel, the team at Local Waste. We also wanted to remind you that you can swing by granddog.ca right now to check out more about their quality raw food. There is no bigger endorsement than the fact that we feed our dogs Grand Dog Essentials quality raw food. One of the things I love, one of the things I love is the door-to-door service. They literally drop off Calgary, Edmonton, and Central Alberta as frequently as once a week if you need. Did I tell you we got a new freezer? No. Oh, yeah, we got a new freezer. And it's also, it's like all well-organized right now. And the Grand Dog food there is just like, whoo, baby. I mean, like when, when things get organized, it's such a, like your sock drawer, your freezer downstairs. How long does it stay like that, though? Oh, like five minutes? <laughs> 2.5 seconds. Until we post it on Instagram. <laughs> yeah. Next up is training the dogs to take out their own food, feed themselves, and then everything will be great. But in all seriousness, the reason why we have trusted Grand Dog with our dog's health is the proof of performance. We consulted with their nutritionists, I don't know, two and a half, three years ago, way before Real Talk was on the air. And we have seen results with our two dogs. Both of them had digestive issues, different ones, obviously, different breeds, different dogs. And the team at Grand Dog has made dramatic improvements in their quality of life. If you use the promo code REALTALK, they'll give you 10% off your first order at granddog.ca. Coming up on tomorrow's show, I mean, we're, we're, we got a lot to talk about. Uh, in, we're going to touch uh, on these wildfires. Our fellow Canadians, our neighbors in British Columbia, they are into one right now. Wildfire scientist Mike Flanagan will join us. We're going to get into another My Jasper memory, which is going to be fabulous. And safety in shopping. What's that all about? It's all coming up on tomorrow's show. In the meantime, have a great day. We're